Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff. Took a week off last week. Sorry, just going through some stuff and kind of needed a week off before uh, we get into another round of crazy on this podcast. As evidenced by what you heard for our theme song this week, we have finally switched over to allowing ourselves to use Persona 5 music. Yes, the Persona 5 reviews are out. People have played that game. I've played that game a long time ago. I have not. Yeah, but it, it was it's the right time to start, you know, supplying our podcast with a fresh source of theme songs. Yes, from from Persona. Yes. Yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost here, man. It is. We are going to talk about a large host of things today. This is a Clearing the Deck episode before the insanity of April begins, where we will have Persona 5, Doctor Who, and more all in the same fucking month. Yeah, because now is around the season where more comic book movies and stuff like that is going to start hitting. That's true also, so we're gonna, we're, we'll are gonna we figure out as we go along. But we've got a lot to talk about. This week on the show we are going to be doing some stuff. Yeah. We're going to be, I'm going to do some more, like I've got a, a subtopic of Nintendo Switch stuff because I finished Breath of the Wild, great game, and then I played some more Nintendo Switch stuff, so I'm going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about some news stuff. Yeah. Like, Joss Whedon's apparently doing a Batgirl movie. Gotta talk about that. I still don't really believe it. I don't think it's gonna happen, yeah. but, like, I, I don't really don't think that's ever gonna happen, but it's an interesting thing that those talks are apparently happening. Yeah. So we'll talk about that. And then uh, we've got three different mini-topics. And mini-topic number one is we're gonna have a little off-the-cuff conversation about what we think the best games are. Yeah, this is not a, like, top ten list thing no. where we went back and did that, or doing that episode again, but it is just like a... This has been, like, this year and last year have been, like, two of the best, like, even though this year is not nearly over, two of the best years in video games in our lifetime. Like, it is making you look back at, like, the fabled year of 1998 when, like, Ocarina of Time, StarCraft, Metal Gear Solid, like, all those games hit. And it was, like, half the original Half-Life hit in 98 and being like, okay, that is, like, clearly the best year in video games. Up till now, and maybe that will not be the case anymore. So it's, it's an yeah. important thing to sort of take a look and take a step back. And when, when you have a year where you know Zelda Breath of the Wild and Persona Five come out in America at least as like a one-two punch, yeah, that's and with a lot of other stuff. But those are two that I think are going to be dominating a lot of critical conversations for yeah. good reason. Um, that's a time to kind of step back and take stock of where where do your critical compasses lie? Yeah. So that's just where we're talking about. Mini topic number two is just going to be a simple Persona 5 preview. Not anything, you're not going to spoil anything for us. So we'll, we just, we'll see if you piss me off too much, maybe we will. <laughs> but we're just going to talk about what we're, uh, what we're looking for on Tuesday. And uh, I'm obviously looking for something different than you are, so it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I'm excited to play that game again. Oh, man. And uh, mini topic number three is final thoughts on The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, because I beat it actually shortly after our last podcast, but you beat it. I beat it a couple of days ago now. Okay, so So we've both beat that game. I beat it with every single shrine and a bunch of other completions. I beat it with, I want to say, like 96 shrines, so I did a good, like I didn't quite make 100, and then I had 100-something core. I had no idea how many Korok Seeds I got at some point, but yeah. Yeah, no, no one is. I, I don't think any sane person is going to say you get to need, need to get all the core seeds to say you hundred percent of that game. Yeah, no, sure. that's that's yeah. a Herculean task to be sure. Yeah, I left a couple of things for myself to do in that game when I just want to go back in and because it's a great game, especially on the Switch. Just like I need half an hour to play a relaxing game, I'll go back in and just explore Hyrule. That's fun. Sure. So yeah, uh, we got all of that. Um, anything before we kind of dive into things? I, I guess we're just going to do some stuff here at the top. Yeah, I, I have a little bit of stuff. Uh, last, or two weeks ago, I guess, on the podcast, I talked about how 
I acquired this very strange uh, DVD box set of a 1990s Chinese television production of Romance of the Three Kingdoms, and I have since started watching it. I'm actually, I'm a reasonable bit into it. I've watched like, I think 14 episodes or something at this point, because I've been trying to do like the one or two a day, more or less. And so it's like if people are just curious about sort of a follow-up on that, I really like that show a lot. It is, it is dated in, in obvious ways, and it has, you know, budget and production things that, like, if you're going into a 90s, like, foreign TV production that is of that scale, you should expect that, like, it's going to have some budgetary and production issues. But overall, I think the show is really well made. The acting is, like, the perfect type of acting that is the kind of thing that if they made this show today, they wouldn't do it like this. They would have, like, they would try to make the actors do a much more sort of realistic, grounded interpretation in style and, like... Romance of the Three Kingdoms needs a very theatrical sort of performance and like because they are very larger than life characters and they take a lot of the dialogue wholesale from the book and so you have these like really theatrical over the top performances which fits the characters perfectly and like it's just a show that even if it has a lot of production issues they never sort of just sort of like cop out on something it always feels like you can tell these are really talented people making this show like doing their best to sort of make it as interesting and as dramatic as possible and it does make sort of it sort of reveals for me some of the just really high quality dramatic structuring that is in the core story that when you adapt it to a tv series even like as directly as they do here like the characters and the sort of dramatic pacing of it works 100 percent, and that's really cool to see Nice. Yeah, so if, if, if someone is listening to this and it is possible and you are curious to watch this TV show, it comes with my recommendation. It's really cool. Nice. That's that's a thin slice of the audience, but that's what we're here for. Hey, you know, like, it's it's a it's a weird journey I'm on, but I'm really happy to be on it. It's, re, it's a, a huge relief in some ways to see that it's as good as it is, because I was sort of committed to watch it just for, like, my own edification and stuff like that. Almost academic purposes. Yeah, yeah, for sort of an academic uh, leaning. And this is, it's really nice to have that and be like, oh yeah, no, it's still fucking awesome and I want to watch it anyways. Yeah. Watch it while you play some Dynasty Warriors on the Vita or something. Sure, yeah, like just get as much of the Romance of the Three Kingdoms nonsense as I can in my life. Absolutely. I got some TV stuff to talk about. All right. Two pieces of TV stuff. The first is, uh, two weeks ago, so after we recorded our last podcast... The Flash and Supergirl aired their musical crossover episode, right. duet, and I just got praised that for a couple minutes because that was really good. And I, you know, more shows when they have that many good singers on cast should just do a musical episode because it's cool to see talented people sing. Right, and you can definitely do it in a like Flash Supergirl universe where you're also doing shit like Gorilla Grodd and stuff. Yeah, you can, it is no sillier than the Gorilla Grodd episode. So, so Gorilla Grodd is the super powered Gorilla supervillain they've chosen for the Flash TV show. Yes, of the like a dozen super powered Gorilla supervillains that DC there. Comics has, it's pretty yeah. insane. Yeah, well, I mean, they did do. The Gorilla Grodd episode this year, because they've done one every season, oh, great. Uh, did involve other gorillas as well. Okay, good. Have so. they it featured Gorilla Gorilla, as in Gorilla, as in like Gorilla Military Tactics Gorilla? No. I, that is always one of my favorite comic book names, is Gorilla but hey, Gorilla. The Flash is a successful show. It will be on for many years. They will get there, awesome. I assume. They're already on like Earth-19 and shit. Right. They're, they're, they're ready for that. Yeah. The Flash is like the comic bookiest comic book show on TV right now. Awesome. But in good ways and bad, but always in very comic booky ways. But no, this was great. They basically, they cribbed a little bit from the Batman Brave and the Bold episode that, that was famously okay, a musical. Because yeah, it yeah. has the music meister who's from that episode. Mm-hmm. And not played by Neil Patrick Harris because he was probably out of their price range. 
but played by Darren Chris, who I think is also on Glee and is one of the many Glee alums who are in that show. Right. And, and it's why they have the pool of singing talent they do, which is just kind of funny. Um, but it was a really good episode. It was a really good, like, it, it's, I think it aired technically as an episode of The Flash, but more so than any of the crossovers they've ever done. It felt like an episode of both shows. Like, it had most of the cast of Supergirl, the whole cast of Flash, and it even had some people from some of the other DC shows who just happened to also be good singers. So they're like, bring them over. Like, John Barrowman, who Doctor Who fans will know from Torchwood yeah. and stuff, uh, he can sing, so he gets to be on it. And uh, Victor Garber, who premiered on The Flash, but he's now one of the stars on Legends of Tomorrow. He plays half of Firestorm. That dude can sing, so bring him on and have them all sing a song from uh, oh, what's it, Guys and Dolls. So that's great. <laughs> it's, you know, it was a good episode. It's basically the music meister puts Kara and Barry in like a coma, and they basically have to sing their way out through a musical. And I, I'm going to spoil it a little bit, but whatever. Um, sure. At the end of the episode, the whole thing is like, the, you think the music meister is up to no good, but really he just realized that Barry and Kara both had like issues in their love lives. And so he did this just to like teach them the value of love. And that as like a villain motivation for me kind of sells the episode. Nice. Because I don't, it would, like the episode would almost be too silly if you gave it a dramatic like underpinning like that. When you give it just the music meister is just this dude who goes around trying to get people to fall back in love. That kind of like sells the whole thing in a weird way. So I don't know. I like that. Um, my only complaint about it is it could have had more songs. There's five songs in it. That's, I mean, for 40 minutes of TV? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's something decent. that it's... I imagine it's really hard to sort of try to pace something yes. like that because you're trying to sort of get that whole TV episode through and also put music into it. Right. And there's there's five songs. Three of them are, are covers or standards, and then two were originals. One is by the uh, by Rachel Bloom, the, the woman who does Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And that song is called Super Friends, and it's Bart, Barry, and Cara singing about how they're friends with lots of hilarious puns like Barry uh, ending a rhyme with I'll Be There in a Flash... And it's, it works because Kara goes, Barry! And she's like, well, that was funny. And that's, that's how it works. It's good. And uh, then the other song was a love ballad written by the, the uh, now Academy Award winning songwriters behind La La Land. So oh, that, was, okay. yeah. that was some star power they got for that one. And that's good. Uh, Grant Gustin, who plays Barry, can fucking sing. That's a good song. But anyway, good episode, good musical. There was one act of the episode that did not have a song, and I felt ripped off for that act. But other than that, Liked the episode, liked that they were willing to go there, and that this CW universe on, or the CW DC universe is like sure enough of itself that they're like, yeah, we can do a musical episode. Fuck it. And I like that. And the most wonderful thing about it is that even though this version of Barry and Kara, like uh, Melissa Benoist and Grant Gustin, have only appeared in a couple of episodes together as The Flash and Supergirl, they already have this like amazing rapport as just like really good friends, kind of like the best you know, team-ups of characters in comic books or in other comic book media where you're just like, you want to see them together because they're just, they're good buddies. Yeah. It's, you know... It's the way that Batman and Superman are supposed to be. Exactly. And and this is like their Batman and Superman where Barry and Carr are just really good friends and they like hanging out. And that's like, you know, they're never going to probably be in a place where they can be regularly, you know, on screen together for weeks at a time because they're on separate TV shows. But it's really cool and it works really well, so... You know, I think The Flash has had some creative troubles in the back half of this season, which is very much what happened to season two, where I think they're, it collapses a little bit under the weight of its serialized storytelling, but they took a week off to do this. It was great. The Supergirl has been strong all the way through, and this was good. So, yeah, I like those shows, and I like that they did a musical crossover. Cool. Yeah, I'm glad that they're taking this opportunity with the TV show to do a musical episode, because the musical episodes never work in the comic books, you know? <laughs> it's probably very true. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, just a lot of word bubbles with musical notes in it. It's like, that doesn't really get the effect across, guys. 
Yeah, no, it was good. No, not on the level of like once more with feeling the Buffy episode, but that's an unfair uh, standard to hold anything to. Sure. I mean, so. it is. It's, it is also, but it's a pretty short list of TV episodes that are musicals that are for programs that typically do not have musical episodes. Yes, there's not a lot of things to compare I, to. I was glad they like committed to it though. They did a proper musical episode because I remember when the show Fringe in its third season, that the Fox Sci-Fi show, right? They were like, we're going to do a fun musical episode, and they like advertised it, and then the episode wasn't really a musical. It had like 30 seconds of singing, and it was just really bizarre. Like it was a very much like. We're going to try to do something weird, but we don't really want to go that far or try that hard. And it was really shitty. And I think that's what a lot of like TV, quote-unquote, musical episodes are like. If you're going to do it, throw yourself into it. Sure, yeah. And that's what makes this work. So that's frankly what makes most good like comic book stuff work. Whether you're doing a musical or something more conventional, you got to throw yourself yeah, into yeah. it. Yeah, throw away your inhibitions and just say, fucking go with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of throwing away your inhibitions, I have also been re-watching the HBO show The Leftovers. Because that is coming back for its final season in April, uh, the day after Doctor Who comes back. Okay. So, busy April, yeah. as I've said before. Uh, and it's because The Leftovers is one of many shows that had a great season in 2015 and then took 2016 off, of presumably because the creators were exhausted from making really good TV. Doctor right. Who did the same thing. Yeah. And um, so I've, I've been rewatching it just frankly because it's like I need that refresher. Because it's not like Doctor Who, you know, you don't really have to rewatch because it's an episodic kind of show and yeah. stuff. I've been rewatching that. And that I just have to urge because that is a very, very low rated show by, you know, especially by HBO standards. And that is such a great television show. And I hope people watch it. I think it's going to be a show that is beloved much more in death than it ever was in life, which is appropriate for that show, frankly. But, um, you know, it's, it's by Damon Lindelof, who did Lost. I think it takes the, if you liked that show or parts of that show, it takes the best of what I think Lost was about and does it in a very, very different setting in terms of just how good its character writing is and its specific discussions of spirituality and metaphysics and things like that. It is a phenomenal show. And it might be in its second season especially, which I was watching all day today up until this podcast, the truest successor to Twin Peaks TV has ever had okay. in that second season. And I do not say that lightly, but I just finished watching the International Assassin episode of The Leftovers, which, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. That is the like most Lynchian thing David Lynch never directed. And, boy, I love that show. That show is so fucking powerful. And it does have a good Doctor Who connection, because one of the co-stars is Chris Eccleston, who's right. the Ninth Doctor. And he's so... Like, I love him as the Ninth Doctor. He's such a good Doctor. The Leftovers is the best thing he's ever done, and probably ever will do. He is so phenomenal on that show. And, you know, basically they do one episode every season that is, like, a you know, hard focus on that character. And they're just, so far, two seasons, so two of the best episodes of TV you'll ever see. And if that show were watched by anyone who votes on Emmys, he would get nominated and he would sail through to a win so easily. He's so amazing on that show, and, and everyone is, but that's just, he's the one who catches my eye the most, in part because of the Doctor Who connection, but in sure. part because those episodes are so powerful. So I've had fun rewatching that show. And that's, that's also one of those shows that just kind of demands second and third viewings to digest it, much like Twin Peaks, which is a good comparison as well. So so did you say that season three is now going to be the last season? Yes. Okay, then I can watch the show now. Yes, um, and it's a shorter season, eight episodes. The first two are ten apiece, so it's not even a long commitment. It's going to be 28 hours total. And Okay, know, yeah, that's, that's doable. That's not a long TV show. This is not like Doctor Who. You don't have to catch up on 50 years of TV. Yeah. You have to catch up on two, two and a half-ish, but it's very good, so... 
Uh, I think they're, they're one of the best current HBO shows. And um, yeah, so just I, I love that show so much, and I can't go into anything else here because I don't want to spoil things about it. But man, that I just want to beat the drum for it. Cool. Yeah. My only other piece of stuff okay. is that in preparation for Persona Five, yes, uh, which is on the PS4. It is on. Yes, it's also on the PS3 if you want to play it there, but. I don't know why you would if you have a PS4. Yeah, like even the, the PS3 version of Persona 5 didn't even like sell that F-sendingly in Japan. Like most of the player base had moved on to PS4 even there. Yeah. Um, but it is out. That's cool if you only have a PS3. That's cool that they kept putting it out. Yeah. Um, but I was going to say, I bought a new PS4 controller. Kind ah. of half to play Persona 5 with half because it caught my eye and I wanted it. Because they have, they've released a new line of colored PS4 controllers. Okay. Yeah. Um, that are the new updated, like, because when they released the PS4 Slim and the PS4 Pro, they had a new Dual DualShock 4 design with them. Mostly the same controller, but with some little redesigned elements. And so I got one of those. I got the red one, which looks really cool. I've it's always... also very appropriate for Persona 5. Exactly. And I've, but I've always wanted a red PS4 controller because I had a red DualShock 3 for yes, the I PS3. Remember it. Yeah. That's the that's the nice controller I didn't give you that mm-hmm. one time I went out of town. Yeah, you gave me your piece of shit controller that rattled that was awful when you were leaving and let me borrow your PS3 for reasons I've never really been able to determine. It, it was a weird lapse on my it was, part. Either it was a weird lapse or like you were just being strangely spiteful. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think it's somewhere in the middle probably. Yeah. But no, I've always wanted to update to like a nice red DualShock 4 because I had that with my DualShock 3 and I thought it would be fun. But their first round of red and like blue and colored PS4 controllers, they just had like like the front face as the color, and then the rest of it was black, and I was like, no good. No one wants that. I and actually so, think that looks slightly better to okay. personally, but... That's okay. But anyway, you don't usually buy colored controllers anyway, do you? Yeah, I, I do. I yeah. do here and there. Like, I definitely had... Uh, it was more with the 360. Oh, you have a blue one. Yeah, I, I do know. have a blue okay. one. But, and for the 360, I ended up just getting, like, special controllers through getting, like, pre-ordered versions of, like, Halo games and stuff. Yeah. So nice. I've, I've, I've had my controllers through, through the years for sure. Yeah, but anyway, this one is now, it's like red on darker red, and I think it looks really cool. Got that in. Nice controller. Just wanted to just like mention the updates to it. It's not like the Xbox One S controller, which had quite a few updates. This one is mostly the same buttons and placement and all that stuff. But they've added that, that little light bar to the touch panel. And my first instinct would be... That adding more light bar to the PS4 controller is not the answer to fixing that controller. But I actually like the little light strip they've added because you can really only see it if you're looking dead on at it. And it allows for any game that like uses color coding or anything with the light bar. Yeah. You don't have to like flip the controller over to see it. So it's a nice little thing they have there. And it also transmits if you have the Pro or the Slim, which does not have the light bar on the console itself. It transmits the basic like white, orange, blue, on-off stuff. Oh, okay. So that's not not orange when it's off, but like it'll go orange and then turn off. So that's nice. I like that it, it, they have that there. Um, I've heard the battery life is longer, and I have not had it long enough to test that. But I know I got it, and it was like when I plugged it in and like synced it, it was at like one bar of battery life, and it lasted longer on that than my PS4 controllers usually do. So that's nice if that's true that that's been enhanced. Otherwise, uh, the only other thing is they've changed the colors a little bit of the buttons, so they're more like old-school PS1 controllers that are gray buttons, not black. Okay. I like that, yeah. actually. Um, and then the thumbsticks are a little more rugged in kind of how they feel, and it actually feels nice to me because that's one thing about the old DualShock 4 thumbsticks is they were the kind of rubber that if you played it in a certain way, they could kind of tear off and stuff, yeah. and I definitely had that with one of mine. These yeah, that is what it. happened to my original DualShock 4 controller that necessitated me to get a new DualShock 4 controller. Yeah, th- these ones should not do that. So that's nice. Nice little update. Uh, they still don't pack in any cords with the DualShock 4s, 
Which I think is a little bit of a ripoff. No, right? But, well, because, but at least, like, it is a proprietary charging cable. It's just, like, micro USB yeah, or whatever. So. It is. Um, see, yeah. I did like that the, the Switch Pro controller, when I bought that, had a cable with it. That was nice. They didn't have to go find a USB-C cable or anything. Well, you're not going to just find one of those lying around in your house no, these I'm days. Not. Yeah. yeah. But, but when I first bought um, a PS4, that was the only micro USB I had. I had not oh, had oh. a micro USB before that. I had many USBs, but not micro. So anyway, not, not a big complaint, but, you know... Uh, it was also on sale when I bought it. I think Amazon still has some of those on sale. It was like 40 bucks, so a good price for a controller. Cool. But now I have a red controller to play Persona 5 with. And Which that's is a very perfect. red video game. Very red video game, yeah. so I'm excited for that. Anyway, um, my other stuff, I'm going to blow through some of these here, okay. is Nintendo Switch stuff. Yes. Yeah. So Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, I finished that. And good God, I love that game. We will talk about it more in spoilers later on. But I'll give my... And maybe you can give this to your quick spoiler-free impression of the ending. Um, okay, yeah. And, and, you know, ending in this game is sort of a personal thing of when you feel like you're ready to go fight yeah. Ganon and move on with the game. I very much felt... And this is how I've played the other Zelda games I've played. I wanted to complete pretty much everything I was dedicated to completing before I finished the game. Right. So I finished all 120 shrines before I faced Ganon. I did... Uh, I was I was kind of thinking of doing all the side quests, and I wound up saving those for later. That, that sounds like a lot to do. I'm, cl- I'm close to done, but okay. uh, one of the nice things that happens is when you beat the game, if you go back into it, it'll tell you how much of anything you have left to complete. Oh, okay. Except for Korok Seeds. Because, again, I don't think the game intends for you to no, find all of them. No, I think the game like very actively does not want you to try to find all of them. Yeah, there's, there's nothing in there that is telling you to do that. But anyway, so I finished most everything. I had all these things done, and that was really cool to kind of finish all of that. And then I went off and fought Ganon. I think the end of that game is incredible. I think the stuff that happens in Hyrule Castle is great. I love the little kind of grace notes it ends on. Uh, Just a beautiful game, and that game never... You know, I played that game. I don't have any idea what the hour count is, except for there is sort of an activity log kind of thing on the Switch. I didn't know this last time we talked about it. But in your profile page... It'll give you like an estimate of how long you've played games for. I just don't know if it's accurate. Right. But it said 95 hours plus okay. for me on Breath of the Wild, which could totally be accurate given how much yeah, I played no, that game. Yeah, that's very plausible. Yeah, but um, I, I can't think of a lot of other games and maybe no other games. I've played for 95 hours and my enthusiasm for that game never dipped once over the course of that. Certainly not an open world game. You know, the closest to that, I would say, of an open world game that, like, propelled me through all the way would be, like, The Witcher 3. And even The Witcher 3 has an interesting structure where it kind of funnels itself near the end. Yeah. And, like, the last act of that game is not open world in the same way the rest of that game is or something. Um, And it's also much, much more narrative heavy and, as we've talked about, better at telling a story than most open world games that try telling stories are. Yeah. So, but, you know, usually with this kind of game, I kind of get tired or frustrated at some point along the way, and I just... Didn't with Breath of the Wild. Even like Final Fantasy XV, which you all know I loved. You know, I beat that game in 30 hours and then went back in and finished everything I wanted to in the open world. And I definitely resented parts of that game by the end because I just played it too much. I never, ever, ever got to that point with Breath of the Wild. And I've dipped back into it a couple of times since finishing it. Just basically to just walk around in the world and relax with it. And I just, I think it's one of the best games I've ever played. I'm so in love with that game. And I'm so amazed that I get to play that, and then Persona 5 next. I feel I feel blessed by the gaming yeah. gods to have these opportunities. So, uh, and what a what a great introduction to the Nintendo Switch. So that's my thoughts on Breath of the Wild, and then I've played some other games. Do you want to give quick spoiler free reactions? Uh, yeah, for the Breath of the Wild, like I have kind of like the opposite feelings on it. I was very fatigued by the time I got to the end of the game to the point where. 
I did the Gerudo area was the last one I did, and I was planning on, after I did that dungeon, to just, like, go through a bunch of the sort of more significant side quests and wander around the area to do shrines. And at some point, I just got so tired of it that I realized, because I was, like, at that point for, like, three days in a row where I was, like, picking up the game and deciding, was going to be like, I'm going to put some time into this and would play it for, like, 30 minutes and just get tired and bored and kind of put it down. So then on the last day, I, like, really just forced my, like, two days ago, I just forced myself to push through to the end of the game. And I do really like the Hyrule Castle area. I would, like, I wish there were kind of more areas in the game that felt a bit more like that in terms of how it is designed. And so I, I really enjoyed going through that, and it's a very different feeling from the rest of the game. And I did, like, I finished all the memories and that kind of stuff. And then I, after beating Ganon, spoilers, you beat Ganon at the end of the video game, I, I, I didn't, like, I thought the ending was fine, I, but I think, like, in terms of, like, sort of, like, narrative impact, there could have been a lot more there to, like, I feel like there are, there are ideas set up by the narrative of the game throughout that feels like they kind of miss a beat or something by the end. That we'll talk more in specifics when we get to the spoilers, but I kind of wish the story had a little bit more something, like a stronger beat to end the story on than what they ultimately went with. Okay. So that game really wasn't for you in a lot of ways. I'm, I'm I guess, like, I wouldn't... Like, I wouldn't necessarily say it's not for me because I would say, like, it feels like the game should be for me. But I think there are there. Are, I have some significant issues with some broader structure things in the game and the combat system in the game that made the game a real chore to play through at a certain point. Okay. Yeah. Well, have fun on that island. <laughs> there, there are there are a lot of there are people who agree with me on the internet. It's nice to see. Like, obviously the game had insanely glowing reviews that I think, like, I can totally see how someone would find it to be a 10 out of 10 game. I think it's kind of weird that it has that many 10 out of 10 kind of reviews because I do think, like, there are enough areas in this game that are pretty significantly flawed that if you are someone that is annoyed by those flaws, this game is going to be incredibly grating like it was for me. We do not see eye to eye on this video game. No, we don't. No. Okay. Like, I don't think it's a bad game. I just think it's it's a game that is way too long for its own good, and it needs a couple of... There are a couple of sort of, like, crucial design choices they needed to make along the way in terms of how they structured some of the content and in terms of how they designed the combat system and the enemies and stuff like that. But see, this is why it's an interesting fresh. conversation to have, is that what you find as flaws, I think I find as strengths. I don't, okay. think, it's, I don't yeah. think it's even a disagreement on, like, I see the flaws and just don't care about them. I think I don't think those are flaws. Okay. And I think we talked about that last time. Sure. So, so we'll yeah. get more in-depth, obviously, with the spoiler stuff yeah. at the end. Um, but th then I've moved on to some other games on my Nintendo Switch, which right. I just, I love this console. Like, that's something I need to talk about, is that I'm at a point, like, I think the Nintendo Switch has rewired my brain a little bit so far for, like, how I approach gaming on some levels, to have this thing that so seamlessly works in these two modes, and you can take back and forth. I saw someone make the, the, the comparison, it's like finally having a game that just operates like a book. Like, you can take your book sure. anywhere and read it, and it's just the book, and that's what you have with this. Or with a lot of TV shows and stuff now that you can take on a tablet or a phone or your computer or your TV or whatever. And to have that experience for games has been really powerful for me and a lot of fun. And to the point where it's like, I'm not... I'm so excited to play Persona 5, I'm a little worried about the experience of having to play that game tethered to my TV for 100 hours. Okay. One, because I played Persona 3 and 4 portably. Right. And so the Persona games to me are not it, like first and foremost home console games. 
Again, this is not going to take away from my enjoyment of the game, I yeah. think. It's just an, a weird thing for me. And, like, you know, I'm, I'm to that point where it's like, man, I wish I had this game on the Switch and this game on the Switch and this game. It's like, it's definitely, it's it's in that zone for me. Uh, but it does help that the Switch does have a good number of good games here. So I'll talk about a couple of these quickly. Um, one is last weekend they did the Splatoon, Splatoon 2 Global Test Fire. Right. Which was basically their beta for Splatoon 2. And I wanted to mention that really quick because it was kind of cool. I downloaded that. They had... Basically, they had for like hour-long chunks over that weekend at different specified times. They had the game up and running for you to play multiplayer in Splatoon 2. And I have never played Splatoon at all uh, on the Wii U. A lot of people haven't, I don't think, because it was on the Wii U. Right. So, But it was kind of cool to try it out here. Um, it was definitely interesting to have an online multiplayer game like that that you could play on your TV. And then I you know, undocked it and played it like that. It was kind of a surreal experience to be doing that. But it worked really well. Like, I'm definitely impressed. The And I've played one other game online on the Switch, which is um, Fast RMX, the racing game, which is so good. But both of those, the online experience was super smooth, super fast, just worked really, really well. And that encourages me, um, sure. you know, that there's an encouraging sign of, like, man, if they can get the other pieces together like yeah. that, that worked really yeah. well. Yeah, sorry, what were you yeah, saying? Well, I like, like, as long as they get, like, stuff like chat systems and, <laughs> sure, yeah. like, a basic messaging and, like, like, the sort of larger infrastructure. Right. But it's nice to see just that, you know, our first taste of online on the Switch was not a disaster or anything. In sure. fact, it worked really well. Splatoon 2 runs at 60 frames per second, docked or handheld or whatever. So it ran really nice. Uh, Splatoon itself, I don't think I got to play enough to, like, get a feeling for the game itself all that much because it's, you know, it's an online multiplayer game that's very different than a lot of games right. like that. The biggest comparison I would make, honestly, is something like Overwatch, where it feels like a casual kind of shooter thing. This is a third person, not first person, but sort of a casual shooter-based thing with, like, a basic class systems that just uh, is very welcoming and inviting, but you can tell when you start playing it, like, this has a lot of depth to it as well that you would have to get good at if you really wanted to kind of seriously follow along with it. Um, but I liked it. It's, it's a creative little game. It's definitely it's nice to see Nintendo having done kind of a different new IP. So I definitely see why Splatoon 1, when it came out on the Wii U, was as kind of acclaimed as it was in different circles and people like that. And I definitely hope this game gets to give it kind of a, a second life. It does feel like the right kind of game Nintendo needs to have to kind of launch an online service. Because this is one that I could see appealing to the crowds that like things like Overwatch that have really taken off in re- recent years. So, interesting game. Cool. And it was cool to have that little uh, free test fire, as they called it. And this feels like it's also a proper beta, not an advertisement demo for the game that they right. call a beta, which robs the word beta of all fucking meaning. This is actually like, the game doesn't have a release date yet. They had just, just a couple of maps. You could tell they were testing things, even though it felt, you know, as Nintendo games do, very polished. This is the first, like, major online game for their whole platform. So. Right. So, felt like an actual beta, but it was cool. Um, then I started playing, and this is not just on Switch. This is also on PS4, PC, Xbox One. The game Snake Pass. Have right. you seen this game? Show? Yeah, I've seen some uh, some video of it. Yeah, so this is a new uh, game from Sumo Digital, which sometimes does it works on bigger games, but sometimes does little like indie projects like this. And so Snake Pass is a game where you play as a snake. Just like a cartoon snake. Yeah, cartoon snake. Yeah. Like, I think they, they would be a very different game if you played as like a photorealistic kind of snake model. I would not be able to play as it due to my crippling phobia of snakes. Yeah. So it's, it's mostly I'm okay playing Snake Pass. A couple times if he slithers too much, it freaks me out. But 
just kidding. He's very cartoony, although I think if Noodle, the snake in this game, were a real snake, he'd be like a coral snake or something. Like, sure, or a, yeah. Like, he'd be very poisonous. Yeah, but yeah it's, he's very brightly colored. Yeah, he'd be a very poisonous snake. Anyway, but in Snake Pass, you basically play through this series of levels. You are a snake, you have this little bird friend, and you go through and you basically have to collect a series of gems and other items to progress to the next level, and each level is like this little open arena kind of thing that you can move around in, and... What's so interesting about this game, I'll say up front, it's a really good game, and I actually, I was a little on the fence with it when I first played it, and then the more I played it, the more I'm really, it's kind of an addictive game to get into, and the whole thing is that, obviously, you don't play as snakes in most games. Yeah. You play as humans or humanoids that have arms and legs and things. A snake does not have that. It can only slither. So really, the whole game is built around what is it like to control a snake, and it's really creative and really well executed in that way, because the controls are very deliberately difficult to control because I don't know an easy way to make that work other than to make it kind of boring and then there would be nothing to do with it. But like you hold the right trigger to make the snake slither and then you can kind of move the direction of it slithering. You can hold the A button. I guess this would be, yeah, whatever. You can hold your main entry button to make the snake kind of raise its head so you can kind of go up and then you can hold the left trigger to make the snake kind of constrict so that if you're around like uh, a pipe or a piece of bamboo or something, you can like tighten around that and then your snake can go higher. So it's like, it seems like a fairly simple control scheme off right off the bat, just a couple of buttons. But then when you get into it, you realize it's pretty complex because the whole game, it's a physics-based platformer. There are no enemies. The only obstacles are obstacles of, you know, basically getting around and moving the snake so you can get to where you need to go and get something. But within that, it's very challenging and it's very addictive. And it's also just a lot of fun because it forces you to think in ways you've never had to think in a video game, really. Because you're moving this snake around and trying to get it up through these different, like, little obstacle courses and, like, around these different bamboo things to kind of make it get across maybe a gap or something. And it's really creative and it's really fun. It's another just perfect fit for the Nintendo Switch, being able to undock it and kind of play it on. I was playing this in the car the other day while... Uh, my, my family were driving up to see my brother in Fort Collins, and it was just a good game to kind of play there. And then playing it on the TV, it's a really nice-looking game. It's, a, it's an Unreal Engine 4 game, and I believe that's the first Unreal Engine game playing on the Switch. So that's nice to see that it can run that, because that's right. a popular gaming engine. Yes, I, so I've heard. You could say, yeah. So, like, it was actually fairly surreal to start a Nintendo console and see... A, the, yeah, the, the Unreal, Unreal logo. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's a lot of games on Nintendo systems that have that. No, I don't think I've ever played one that, that starts with that big, like, red U. Yeah. Maybe some early Wii U games that didn't run well? Probably, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, like, Epic Mickey 2 maybe used Unreal. I have no idea. And that is a nice sign because we, I, we've heard that developers saying that the Switch is very easy to develop for. Yeah. And that, you know, popular engines like Unreal run very well on it. And Snake Pass is good evidence of this. Digital Foundry did a comparison video of Snake Pass on the Nintendo Switch and on the PS4. And it's largely identical. Like, the PS4 has a couple sure. of nicer things, but the Switch also has a couple of things that look... So it's mean, like, It seemed like the main thing was with the Switch that it, it ran at a reduced resolution, but if when you're playing it, like, mobily, I think it, it ran at a relatively low resolution, but you're playing it on, like, a smaller screen, so it doesn't yeah. matter that much. I will say, you do notice that when it's handheld, that it seems like a bigger difference between handheld and docked than some other games... But it also doesn't matter that much. Yeah. You know, it's not... And there is a lot going on in that game visually. Like, it's simple and cartoony, but for one, just like the physics going on in it, 
and the amount of like stuff going on. It's another game that has like a lot of grass and stuff like that. So it is impressive that it runs as well as it does. Um, no frame rate drops or anything like that. But it's a good game. It's it's you know a very it's a physics based platformer that feels very you know. It's kind of like these little movement puzzles throughout the world. And I think if you want to play something that just feels different, it's great. And it also, while it feels like no other game you've ever played, it has this tone and this atmosphere that is very much like rare games or games of that ilk from like the 90s and the early 2000s on like the PS1 or the N64. It even has a score by... Uh, what's his name? David Bass or something like that, who wrote the Donkey Kong Country score. Is it David Weiss? Is David that his Weiss? Name? That's yeah. it. Yeah, Weiss and great composer, obviously. Yeah. And this is a it's a great score for Snake Pass. It doesn't have a lot of music, but the music it does have is so fucking good. And it just it has that charm. It definitely feels like a modern version of the kind of game I would go play at a cousin's house on their PS One because I didn't have a PS One and be like. This is really crazy and different and weird, and you get that same feeling. It's only 20 bucks. It's on pretty much every platform. I would definitely recommend it if you want a smaller game to just uh, play around with. Yeah, I, I've been sort of eyeing it for a while, thinking about playing it, but since Persona 5 was so close, I was like, ah, I, I'm not going to get it quite yet. But it, looking at it, it kind of reminded me of that Ubisoft game, Grow Home, that came out a couple of years ago that's like a 3D platformer where you play as a little robot where you, and you're like climbing up this tower and it's really like this 3D platform designed around kind of like with Snake Pass these very unique controls whereas with Grow Home it is this very sort of dynamic like you it's almost kind of like if Breath of the Climbing and Breath of the Wild wasn't just you pushing up on the left stick but like you're controlling where each hand and leg went basically while you're trying to mantle up everything but you can grasp onto and climb everything and it's this very tactile kinetic physical sort of platformer game and I, I there's something that is very sort of invigorating about that and that it seems like Snake Pass is very much the same thing of taking a lot of the basic sort of structural concepts and design elements of that sort of like N64 era of 3D platformers that has mostly died away but finding a way to bring it back with a really interesting control system that is not just like you know the Mario 64 style like run jump like long jump triple jump like those movesets that you know got really tired out in that kind of generation of platformers and I do think there's something about really sort of like interesting physics model based platforming that like it's it's messy and it's weird but i think it has like a cool place right now in a way that to me something like that ukulele game that is a sort of like throwback to banjo kazooie doesn't really interest me because i feel like those games had their day and this is a cool evolution of them speaking of games that are evolutions of games past the last thing on my switch list is i have finally Taken the the dive into Shovel Knight, right? Yeah, which is the one of the indie game sensations of the last few years. Yeah, came out originally in the tail end of 2014, although it did not come out for most platforms until like mid 2015. Yeah, um, and, at, a, and at this point, it feels like that game is on everything, isn't it? It's on pretty much everything, and it's it's nice that it you know came back to the Switch because it started on Nintendo platforms. Yeah. it was on the 3DS first. It went to Wii U. After that, it went to all the other platforms. But it's back on the Switch, and the Switch version is. At the moment, it will not be this time next week, but at the moment, it is still a a Switch exclusive in that it's got this version called Treasure Trove, which has all three campaigns, the original Shovel Knight, the Plague Knight campaign, and the new Spectre Knight campaign, which is also available separately on Switch if you just want to play that. And that is still a Switch exclusive until, I think, late next week, because that's finally coming to other things. So if you own other versions of Shovel Knight, you'll get that Spectre Knight DLC, and good God is it fantastic, and we'll talk about that. But Shovel Knight is one of those games that I feel like I should have been playing since it came out, because Uh it looks like it is right up my fucking alley, and I just for some reason never did, very much like the Uncharted trilogy in that way, where it's like, this looks like a game for Jonathan... 
He's not playing it right now, though. Yeah. And, yeah, and I told you that, and then like two or three years later, you're like, and I, I played those Uncharted games, and they're really good. Yeah, yeah well, I know. Yeah, I told you. I just, I had no way to play them. You, <laughs> I played them on your fucking PlayStation 3. I know. That's the joke, all right? Anyway, but I got Shovel Knight for this. The Treasure Trove version is 25 bucks, and I think that's a, a great deal for everything you get in there. Because you get so first, I played through the original Shovel Knight campaign. I'd been kind of noodling around with it while I was playing Breath of the Wild, but that is a game you cannot. Shovel Knight is very difficult. You cannot like right. play that on the side. You have to focus on that. So when I finished Breath of the Wild, I started a clean playthrough of Shovel Knight and started from the beginning. And I played it over the last week and beat it. And one that might be the hardest game I've ever beat. Like okay. the competition for that would be like Halo Reach on Legendary. So I like I don't get into hard games all that much. I'm right. not into like Dark Souls and stuff like that that are kind of actively punishing. <laughs> sure. But um, you know, mostly it's like Halo on Legendary is my limit for that. But I really got into Shovel Knight and there are so many things that are great about this game. But the number one thing for me that I kept thinking about is while on the surface it is a, you know, NES throwback in that it looks like games of that era, you know, it's got Elements of Mario 3 and Castlevania and Castlevania 2 and Zelda 2 is a big uh, reference for that game and DuckTales is a big reference for that game. Yep. There's new DuckTales coming back with David fucking Tennant as Scrooge. That is great casting. Anyway, maybe that'll be a show we podcast about. <laughs> sure. Maybe, maybe, that is, maybe that's the weird connection. It's just going to be every David Tennant show from now on. <laughs> sure. Anyway, those will pile up. He's a busy guy. Yeah. We have to talk about Broadchurch Season 3, and I don't want to. Sure. Because I didn't like Season 2. Anyway. It was okay. Okay. Anyway, um, <clears throat> Shovel Knight. It, it is a throwback in a lot of ways to those games. But more than any of... Because we're in an era of like those kind of retro throwbacks, you know? Yeah. They did like Mega Man 9 and 10. And you've had a lot of games that sort of borrow those different elements. Especially as it's been easier and easier to develop indie games. And there's a platform for that. A lot of people are doing those kinds of throwback games. And I enjoy some of those sometimes. But I often feel like maybe this is just a throwback. It doesn't feel like it's offering me anything fresh. Shovel Knight is completely and totally its own thing. It has those inspirations, but what I love about that game is it doesn't feel like they're trying to make a game from the 1980s. They made a game in the year 2014, 2015, you know, whatever you're playing it in, and it's a game of this time with the tools we have now. It just is in that art style. And, you know, it's a throwback to NES art style, but you look at the art in this game and there's no way you could have programmed that on an NES or even a Super NES. Like, the stuff going on in this game for its backgrounds and the kind of color mixtures it has and obviously just some of the basic physics that are going on, especially in the DLCs. Like, Spectre Knight, it laughs in the face of what you could do on the NES. Like, some of the basic just stuff that is going on in that game. And it is completely its own thing. Even the music, it's a chiptune soundtrack, but, like, if you listen to it, and it is such a brilliant soundtrack... I got. I bought it. You can buy it on the uh, the composer's website, which is cool. And the the soundtrack just has like it has more layers of music going on than a lot of old chiptune soundtracks. Just one technically would have been able to have, and two were having because a lot of the composers from that day, like Koji Kondo, was not like a classically trained composer. He was sure. a guy who kind of fell into it and turned out to be a genius at it. So there's just a lot of things like that in Shovel Knight. It has amazing writing like the main storyline which is Shovel Knight has to go to the Tower of Fate to rescue his love Shield Knight and there's now a body swap mode where you can make it oppose the gender so it doesn't have to be like you can have female Shovel Knight and male Shield Knight or two females or whatever that's kind of a cool new feature in this version of the game um, which I think is a neat thing that they've added in because it definitely you almost want that for a Mario game at some point with Mario and Peach or just like swap Mario and Peach or something I know I want a gender bit Mario 
gender bent Mario. I want a really hot lady Mario. That's what I'm looking for. Maria. <laughs> sure. Yes, Maria. Yes. <laughs> anyway, Maria Mario. <clears throat> Maria Mario. Yes. No, but it, so that main storyline is great, and just the writing of it, like it feels like kind of half inspired by like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where it gets the language of that kind of stereotypical medieval writing. But it takes itself very seriously, and that's what makes it funny. So, you know, the, the main bad guys in the game are the Order of No Quarter. And when Shovel Knight will meet one of them, it's like, you know, halt and things like that. And just very, like, heightened language, and it's very funny. And Shovel Knight himself is just a very expressive character, even though you don't see his face. And, like, the world map you have, which is very, like, Mario 3-inspired. It's just this great little world map. And there's the main levels, which are the attraction of the game, obviously. But then you have the little towns you can visit and things like that. And there's so many just fun little secrets to see there. The world just is so filled with color. And the art design is so beautiful that it's just fun to be in the world and to follow the story. And it actually has a surprisingly, like, touching and beautiful conclusion that I really liked, too. So it's worth playing through for the story itself and then the gameplay is so fucking good like the thing of he's a knight with a shovel it sounds stupid they have so much fun with it that he has this shovel and he can basically do the scrooge mcduck jump from the ducktales game okay and that's because really- everyone knows that's what you do with shovels yes yes they act like pogo sticks i mean that is the the function for which shovels were invented see that's why it's fun it doesn't take itself too seriously and so you jump around on your shovel and it is a game with Pretty simple controls in the in the actual Shovel Knight version of the game, but it's you know very one of those easy to learn, hard to master, and the game just becomes absolutely punishing at a point. But I love that every level in the game, and there's not that many of them, there's like 10 or 11 total levels, but each one of them is very long and will take you a lot of time to like sit down and master, and you really do feel like you have to master it to get to the end, at least if you want to keep any of the gold you get, and you want the gold because you can buy better stuff with it. It's a really cool system how all of that interplays. And so it's just it's this really satisfying thing of... I, it's especially While Shovel Knight is a good game for the Switch, and I enjoyed playing it portable mode, dock mode, whatever... If I was going to play it and play like one of the main levels, not one of the offshoot things, I had to like clear the time and be like, I'm spending an hour to 90 minutes and I'm going to figure this out. You cannot go in like half-heartedly or playing it kind of on, you know, on the side of something. You have to be like into it and focusing on it, but it is such a fucking rush when you get to the end of levels. And I just love that game to death. I know I'm really late to this bandwagon, yeah. but Shovel Knight is so fucking good. And I think whether you like the kinds of games is, you know, a partial homage to or not. It is just a great game beyond any reference to an era. And it's a reminder to me that there is no reason those kinds of games have to die just because we don't play games on giant cartridges anymore. You know, 3D is the standard for games now, but if you want to make a game like this, there's no reason not to. And you don't have to just make it a strict homage. You can just be creative and do your own thing with it. You know, Shovel Knight has those homage elements, but its story and its art style and all those things are utterly original to what it's doing. And I love that about it so much. And I, I can't wait to see where this developer, Yacht Club Games, goes when they're done with Shovel Knight itself. They had they, they had a really successful Kickstarter, so they're still fulfilling game-related goals from that at yeah. this point. Like Because the Plague Knight and Spectre Knight campaigns were something that were unlocked as stretch goals on the Kickstarter. And they're only just now finishing... They just now finished that Spectre Knight campaign. I guess in some ways that is the danger of Kickstarter. Is if you are too successful, all of a sudden you are chained to this project with you way yes. over-promised... Like, we'll make Shovel Knights 2, 3, 4, and 5 if you give us this much money. <laughs> That's pretty much what they promised. And so I have played that the Treasure Trove collection includes the, the DLC campaigns. Plague Knight, the first of those, I don't think it's very good. It's basically a redo of the Shovel Knight campaign where you play as Plague Knight. 
And it's not like it advertises itself as anything different. I'm not trying to say that. But Plague Knight, him, like, they do some interesting things. Plague Knight is not a skin of Shovel Knight. He is a completely 100% different character, plays 100% differently, and I just don't think, like, he plays very well. And I think the levels are sort of slightly redesigned to accommodate Plague Knight, but I just found it a little grindy and cumbersome, and I didn't love the controls all that much. It didn't kind of have the snappy intuitiveness that Shuffle Knight itself did, so I didn't get very far into that. But then I jumped ahead to Spectre Knight, because this is the game of the moment, just came out, and it's the one I kind of wanted to play to get an experience of, and maybe try to finish it before Persona 5. I'm like halfway through now. And Spectre Knight is so fucking good. If you own a Switch, or next week, any other gaming console... Play Spectre Knight. Whether you've played Shovel Knight or not, just play fucking Spectre Knight. It is so fucking good. Spectre Knight is one of the villains from Shovel Knight. He's like this big Grim Reaper dude. And in this game, like, this is also kind of the same idea as Plague Knight in that now you play as one of these characters. He's a completely different, you know, move set and everything from Shovel Knight. But I feel like they were way more creative in how to do it. And while it has some structural similarities to Shovel Knight, it's different levels. Like, the first level is sort of a riff on the first level from Shovel Knight, because it's kind of teaching you how to play the game. But after that, it's the same level names. Like, it's the same places in, like, the lore of the world, but the levels themselves are completely different. Um, The music is a, you know, heavily remixed version or rewritten version of those themes. So, it's like you're going through similar places, but from a completely different vantage point. And Spectre Knight himself just has a much more complex moveset. He can almost do, like, the Sonic the Hedgehog, like, jump and dive on people, because basically... Whenever you're near an enemy, this line will show up through them depending on where you are in relation to the enemy. And you can hit the attack button and his scythe will jump and propel him up through the enemy. Or if the enemy is on the ground, you can do, like I said, almost like the spin attack on an enemy in Sonic and things like that. And so it adds this... And that and a couple of other systems, like he can wall jump and climb up walls for a certain length. It adds this just totally new level of, um, you know, controls and complexity to the game that is really fun and makes the game feel really, really fast-paced. Like, the levels are also very long and in some cases even harder than the levels in Shovel Knight. But because of the way Spectre Knight moves, there's just this massive sense of propulsion and pace and momentum to these levels that is an absolute blast to play through. And I don't think I've played enough of it yet to really say if I like this more than the base game. And it's hard to compare because the base game is more fleshed out. This one does not have a world map. It's much more, like, focused. It it even has um, the kind of, like, Breath of the Wild thing where you can play it in any order. They, like, give you a list of levels and it's like, you just got to clear them all. And it's actually, like almost like like Mega Man or something that way. Yes, actually, Mega Man is probably the better comparison there because Shovel Knight already has a lot of Mega Man in it, in that each level is built around a boss. Okay. But in Shovel Knight, you have to play through them more or less linearly. You can kind of do some of them in different ways on the world map, kind of like you can in certain Mario games. But other than that, um, it's more or less linear. Spectre Knight is completely non-linear. And so the one bad thing about that is you might pick a level that you are not ready for. Right. Um, but generally, it seems like it's less about. Um, how much stuff you have equipped than your own skill with it. So it's really good, though. Spectre Knight, just a great, proper sequel to Shovel Knight. And I I love it. And I don't know if they're going to do more with Shovel Knight in the future, if they're going to do another DLC like that, or a Shovel Knight 2, but I just can't wait to see what this developer does. Because to me, this is one of the best uh, entries in the current indie game revolution that we have, and definitely the best of the current retro throwback revolution we have. So hot damn, I love this game. Cool. And I should also say, playing on the Switch, 
the D-pad on the Joy-Cons, which is like four separated buttons, right. doesn't bother me at all. Okay. It's actually surprising how much it doesn't bother me. I think some of that is because Shovel Knight kind of moves with a sort of slow precision to it that you're, you're not trying to move two directions at once or anything. So it works totally fine. And I've even found in some cases I prefer it because the D-pad on the Switch Pro Controller has... A, I don't know what's going on with it. It's not a perfect D-pad. Okay. I've heard some people complain that they think there's something wrong with it. Have you heard about this, like, software-wise? Where no, I haven't. If you move left or right, you'll wind up accidentally moving up or down. Huh. I've heard that reported in some places. And the more I play it, I don't think it's a software issue. I don't think the controller... It's like there's something wrong with the wiring of it or anything. What it is is that the, the D-pad is a little too mushy on the corners. Hmm. And you can too easily hit like up and over when you mean to just hit one or the other. Does it kind of feel like the, the Xbox 360 D-pad in that way? Yeah, like it, not tactilely because the Xbox sure. 360 literally has like a circle around yeah, yeah. it. This is a very standard Nintendo D-pad, but it doesn't have the same kind of like crisp clarity of other Nintendo D-pads. Or like what the PS4 does that I love is that they are four separated buttons on the top, but they rock underneath. Yeah. So it's very precise. It just, it, like, there's something slightly off in the build of it. I don't think it's a software thing. Because I've definitely, like, looked at it and noticed it when that happens to me. And it's like, oh, my finger was, like, rolling a little bit too far up. And on most D-pads, that doesn't matter. But it mattered here. Huh. So, yeah. Not as bad as, like, the 360 issue where it's really hard to play D-pad-based games on the 360. Yeah. It's not quite like that. For the most part, it's totally fine. There were some parts in Shovel Knight near the end where I had to be really, really precise. Where it frustrated me a little bit. So, just thought I'd mention that. But on its own, like the, the, the four-part D-pad that they have on the, the um, Joy-Con, because of kind of how springy it is and how small that controller is overall, it actually doesn't bother me at all. If you need to hit two of the directions at once, you can very easily. So, I'm, I was pleasantly surprised by that because I thought Shovel Knight might be a game I just had to play with the Pro Controller. wasn't the case at all. So Cool. Pretty neat. So anyway, that's my Nintendo Switch stuff. Still love that console. Uh, if you want one, you probably can't get one. No. Yeah. Although I did, it was pretty funny. There's a, a co-worker of mine has been wanting a Switch. And he even bought Zelda, but he didn't have anything to play it on. So he's been very sad about that. And Why did he I buy Zelda? I think he thought he was going to be able to get a Switch. Oh, okay. And so, but anyway. Um, and then the other day, Amazon had it up for like half an hour. And I know this because he ran into my office saying, I got one, I got one. So he was very happy to get a Switch. And then another person in my office bought it as well. So cool. it's kind of funny. Um, but if you were not good for that half hour on Amazon... You have to wait a while because, uh, as we know, one, uh, game consoles are in short supply when they launch, and two, Nintendo is bad at uh, managing supply. Yes. And when you put have those you two ever things... managed to find in mini NES? Nope. No. I still I'm have... not convinced that those are like that anyone ever bought a single one. I don't even know if they ever actually made it. Yeah. No, I, it is still easier to find a Switch than a mini NES, as crazy as that is. <laughs> I don't know. What is Nintendo doing? You can get an iPhone, but you can't get a Nintendo Switch, and one of those is easier to make than the other. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, let's go ahead and move on to some news. Okay. What's in the news, Jonathan? Uh, this is an old piece of news, but we kind of... I forget if it was after the last podcast or we forgot about it on the last podcast, but I just wanted to mention that the Sonic Generations sequel, Project Sonic 2017, that we were we thought looked really cool. Yes, yeah, because Sonic Generations was a fucking awesome Sonic game. Awesome Too many Sonic. people forget that that was a really good Sonic game. Really good Sonic game. And uh, the, the sequel, whatever it is, has been named. It is called Sonic Forces. Very generic Sonic name, but the game still looks cool. Sure. You know, at some point... There have been a lot of Sonic the Hedgehog video games. You kind of run out of the names. Yeah, I had to check because I kept thinking this one was called Sonic Fusion. <laughs> 
Is there no Sonic game called Sonic Fusion? I don't think so, but it sounds like there should be. There really should be. There, like that, really feels like there was some sort of like weird Game Boy Advance Sonic game called Sonic Fusion. I maybe there is, but I, this one is definitely Sonic Forces. I looked it up. They did like a minute long gameplay thing of one of the levels. Looked very much like Generations, but you know, next gen looks cool. Yeah. No, I'm I'm excited for that. Like like again, Sonic Generations was a really awesome Sonic game. Which is are is a kind of video game that is in very very short supply, and the fact that a sequel, a proper sequel to that game, and that Sonic Mania game that looks fucking awesome are coming out within like a short period of each other makes me very happy as a Sonic fan. Yep, and I'm really happy both of those are coming to the Switch. That's cool, and I think Forces will be a nice test for like a bigger AAA game on that console. So yeah. that'll be neat. But both, man, we're gonna get some Sonic goodness this year. Two of these. Yeah, I'm so happy. Anyway, looks good. Sonic Mania was delayed to the summer, but it never actually had a date, so I don't know if that's really a delay. Yeah, that's always one of those weird things where they kind of always said, hey, it'll be spring, I guess, and then they're like, ah, it'll be summer. It's like, okay, like until you say a specific day, I'm not going to try to hold you to anything. Like, that's fine. Yeah. It's going to be good when it comes out. You can just tell. That game looks fantastic. Yeah. Uh, it's got a lot of Sonic 3 in it, which is great. Yes, which is the best Sonic the Hedgehog game still. Yes. Uh, all right. Next, uh, a couple pieces of superhero stuff. Okay. Do you want to go with the good trailer first or the bad trailer first? <sighs> let's let's do bad. Let's do bad first. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Justice League had its first trailer last week. Yeah. And well, it had that like Comic Con teaser thing. Yeah. Last year. Yeah. But this was like its first proper trailer. Yeah. Like that you would see in a movie theater. Yeah. And um, you know, I will for this, I will say this for it. It was not as bad as it could have been. No. Like but it, it was, was better than a lot of the Batman v Superman trailers, I guess. But it was. Let's not like. Let's not do a Donald Trump on this and grade it on a curve. <laughs> Just because it didn't shit itself doesn't mean it was a good movie trailer. No, or that yeah. this movie looks "quote unquote" good. It kind of the thing it reminded me the most was of the Suicide Squad trailers. It had that sure. same quality of like, it like some of it kind of visually looks good, but it in no way presents what felt like a cohesive statement about what this movie was trying to be. Because the, the weirdest thing about it to me, I mean, there are certain stupid things about it that you just come to expect, like, there's no sun in Zack Snyder's DC Universe. Right. They will never appear in daylight. The sun has Maybe been... that's why Superman died. He, he's so weak in this version, because there is no sun. The best suggestion I saw on Twitter is, the plot of this movie is the sun is gone, they have to find the sun, and when they find the sun, Superman gets to come back. Yeah. But no. Um, the weirdest thing to this about this trailer to me, though, like, putting aside just the stuff you expect from a Zack Snyder movie that looks shitty... Is that it felt like the trailer was built kind of like an Avengers trailer or something to like play off our inherent love of these characters. Uh But we don't know these characters! Yeah, the only one of them that... Or I guess Wonder Woman has appeared in in a small cameo sort of role in Batman v Superman. Doesn't count. Yeah, and then Batman obviously was in Batman v Superman. Which, like, at least he is a character that has been introduced before. It's very unfortunate that they introduce an awful fucking version of that character. So seeing him on screen makes me actively kind of angry. Yes, and when he cracks jokes, he sounds like a sociopath because this Batman is a mass murderer. Yeah. So anyway, that's a little weird. But no, it's like you see the Flash or Cyborg or something or Aquaman. It's like, it's Aquaman. We love Aquaman. I don't know Aquaman. And this is clearly their own version of it. So like whatever tied in, like if I were a huge Aquaman fan from the comics or something, I'm sure those people exist. There's a couple. There's a couple. I've met one. Okay. Are they going to get excited by this? Like what... 
you have to just because the character was in comic books, that's not enough to make you excited. Yeah, like it really did feel like the trailer was not cut to be like this is introducing the Flash. It's like this is the Flash y'all know and love, and it's like no, the Flash I love at the moment is actually the one on TV every week. Right. You know, and this one they're clearly doing the exact same story with him from season one of the Flash. Seems like a weird choice to me, but whatever. And yeah, and I don't need his like bulletproof Flash armor because that looks right. dumb. Yeah, for me, it was also whenever they would cut to Cyborg, it was a combination of both, like, hey, it's a trailer, it's the first real trailer, like, the visual effects are not done, so it's like, if the visual effects look like crap on Cyborg, I'm not going to hold it against them, but also just, why the fuck is Cyborg one of the main characters in this movie? I just don't, I fundamentally so deeply do not understand, and I get there was, like, a thing when the, the New 52 comic reboot started in like 2010 or 11 or whenever that happened, they made Cyborg a charter member of the Justice League in that continuity f- for reasons that back then I really didn't understand. And so I guess there is like a weird business synergy reason for doing that, but w- nobody knows who Cyborg is and even the people who know who Cyborg is don't really give a fuck that much because it's just Cyborg. I liked him in the Teen Titans cartoon that was a cool version of that character, but generally, Cyborg is just a cyborg, and that's kind of all that that character has going for him. And Teen Titans is a very specific version of that character. Yeah, no, it's a very different version of that character than the one in the comics. Or presumably the one in this movie. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to do a mostly CGI member of the Justice League, say it with me, why not Martian Manhunter? Yeah. That would be a slam dunk, because one, when he's a Martian, he can just be CGI and you don't have to mix it. Yeah. Like, you say don't hold it against them. True... It's going to look like shit, though. I can guarantee yeah. you that. When you're doing that kind of mix of, like, human face and CGI body, y'all saw how Green Lantern turned out. It didn't look any better in the movie from the trailers. It's not going to look good. I'm yeah. sorry. There's no way to make that look natural. But if you did, like, a Martian Manhunter, you could have him in a human form if you needed to save on money in a scene. And then turns into a Martian. Yeah. And he's all CGI. And then you kind of don't bat an eyelash at it because he's all CGI. Or better yet, you just put a dude in a suit, but they're not going to do that. Yeah, I mean, you just, you know, it's just like, you know, you just have him in green makeup. And then when, like, he's supposed to be a Martian, you just shoot it in such a way that it's implied that he's big and scary. Sure. You save so much money that way. It worked for 50 sci-fi movies. Yes, indeed. Most 50 sci-fi movies are probably going to be way better than Justice League is. Oh, Superman and the Mole Men. Better Superman movie than sure, uh, yeah. Batman v Superman. The, which, the, speaking okay, of Superman, that's another point in the trailer of watching that trailer and me remembering over the course of that trailer that, oh, right, spoilers, they fucking killed Superman at the end of Batman v... I mean, I should say, killed in quotation marks, killed him at the end of Batman v Superman, and so Superman is not in the fucking Justice League trailers. He's obviously going to be in the movie at some point, but it is so fucking weird that it's Justice League and Superman, the most iconic DC superhero... Sorry, the most iconic superhero character is not in it at all. Yeah, like, I think if you ask people who's in the Justice League, the only character 100% of people could get right is Superman. Yeah. I doubt even 100% of people could get Batman, because a lot of people don't think Batman teams up. Yeah. They're wrong, but I understand from, like, mainstream media, Batman doesn't usually team up in live-action movies, Mm -hmm. so you might not know that. But everyone knows Superman's in the Justice League. Yes. And they are marketing the first major Justice League movie, and Superman is not even hinted at. He's yeah. not on the posters. He's not. They didn't even do the thing that you would think they would do in the trailer, where they would like have his silhouette at the end of like, oh, he's coming back because we all know he's going to come back. Yeah. That's not a spoiler, guys. That's not a spoiler. He's in the cast list, but like you have to have the poster with everyone else, and it's like 
I'm sorry, it doesn't just it fundamentally doesn't look like a Justice League movie if Superman's not in it. Yeah. It just doesn't look like that movie. Like it would be like if they made the Avengers and killed Tony Stark in Iron Man 2 and they did the Avengers without Iron Man. Yeah. And you'd be like that's weird. That wouldn't be as weird as Justice League without Superman. Yeah. Because it is like he is that team. Like, like that is, he is the guy that is in the center, you know, like in the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, like cartoons and then like the opening theme song part. You then they did the big awesome lineup shot of all the team members at the end and then the Unlimited when it was like a hundred characters, it zoomed way out. Guess who was in the middle of that lineup every single fucking episode? It was fucking Superman. Like he is the face of that team. It's, you could maybe do this in like Justice League 2. Like sure. if he died at the end of Justice League 1, then maybe you could do a Justice League 2 about the team has to bring him back. You don't do that for the first movie. That's yeah. just such a dumb storytelling decision. But it's also a dumb marketing decision. Like you have to think there's someone in DC or Warner Brothers marketing who's like, can I use a shot of Superman? No. Like, so my task is to sell a Justice League movie without the one Justice League member people know. Yeah. Yes. How am I supposed to do that? And I don't know how because that movie looks like a lot of things. It doesn't look like a Justice League movie. I'm sorry. Yeah. There is also, just like as a trailer, it was a bit frustrating that, you know, like we talk a lot about movie trailers on this podcast and how there is like a very delicate balance between like, it's like not showing too much and like, and not showing too little. You know, you want to give enough of an idea of the movie so that you sort of pitch the movie to the audience, but not so much that they feel like I don't need to go see the movie. And this was definitely one of those, like a lot of the Suicide Squad trailers, where you watch that whole movie, or that whole trailer, and you're like, is there a plot in this movie that is not just like the first 15 minutes or something of them getting the people together? Like, why are they getting the team together? What threat is there to fight? Like, what is what is the point? Like, it, it just looks like the a trailer for, like, the first part of a two-part Justice League TV movie or something, you know? Like, it doesn't have any sort of pitch of like what the movie is trying to be at all and if it's anything like suicide squad the answer to all those questions will be there was no point there was no story there actually wasn't even any joker (laughs) right yeah yeah maybe we saw all the footage of cyborg and then all my complaints will be for not and you know on, on some level also like they can't sell what this movie is actually about because if you put front and center that the villain is named Steppenwolf and he's looking for boxes and shit, right. people would just laugh you out of the fucking room, especially after their last two movies. Yeah. That a lot of people saw, but no one to my knowledge liked. Yeah, it's just like, it's, but just thinking about that is making me so bummed out that, like, with all these, like, we have, like, this big DC movie push and all this shit, and it seems we're finally going to get. A cinematic version of Darkseid, which is like one of my favorite DC villains of all. Like he's just so cool, and it's going to be so fucking shit. You know, ah, oh. maybe it'll be like the uh, cloud at the end of uh, Fantastic Four: Rise of the Silver Surfer, right? Or like the cloud at the end of the Green Lantern movie. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, they'll just fall back on that old gym. It's like it's Darkseid, the the menace of all space, and it's just an abstract sort of gastronomic phenomena. Or, and here's the possibility, we never get to Darkseid because Justice League might not do that well, or right. it might just be really bad, and then they decide, we're going to take like five years and actually figure out who these characters are. And by the time we get to the next one, we'll have to recast everyone, and we're just going to have to start over, and then we're going to do something more sane to start yeah. with. Yeah, I don't know. Can't yeah. wait for Steppenwolf. <laughs> I barely know who Steppenwolf is. I, 
I, I mean, he sounds like like a Swedish hard rock star. Yeah, no, it does. It definitely sounds like this, like '80s, like one-hit wonder band or something. Yeah. No, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a trailer. It has a lot of really shitty jokes where they're trying to like laugh it up, and they're yeah. not good at it. Aquaman was on the the Batmobile in a shop. Yeah, that happened. I mean, you know, Jason Momoa totally looks the part for Aquaman. Sure, that's good casting. Um, I'm going to reach here. Uh, J.K. Simmons looks like a really good Commissioner Gordon. Sure. I don't know why Commissioner Gordon is going to be in this movie. That's my bigger question. And I was going to say, he looks like a good Commissioner Gordon in the way Jeremy Irons was a good Alfred of, he's going to be good, but you're going to be like, he was woefully underutilized, and I don't know why they bothered. I bet bet what they do is they just take all the lines they're going to have Jeremy Irons like Alfred Reed and just give them to J.K. Simmons as Gordon of he's going to be like exasperated and just like kind that of world weary and, and like take the shit out of Batman in every scene he's in and that'll be every line of dialogue he has that's every line he had in this trailer so exactly. there you go uh, yeah, it has a really bad uh, cover of Come Together in it. Right, probably. right. I was trying to remember. There was something about the movie in the trailer, or the, the music in the trailer that really set me off, and I couldn't remember what it was. Yes, it was like, don't... That's that's like a don't make a reference to a better movie in your shitty movie. It's like, don't put music that is so awesome in your... Or like a song, generally, of like the original, obviously, version of it is way better. But like the, that song in your trailer for that is going to be a billion times better than even like a good Justice League movie would have been. Don't do that. You're just setting yourself up for failure. It was like when Suicide Squad used Bohemian Rhapsody. It's like, what the fuck are you doing? You're like, never going to be able to approach like the slightest shadow of the sort of cultural impact that this song has had don't try to fucking put yourself next to it yeah uh whatever it you know it's a movie i wonder if audiences are going to have any real enthusiasm for this right um i mean we'll see i don't i don't know that suicide squad and batman v superman were both really big we'll see what wonder woman does yeah and that's still coming out you know wonder woman looks better but i don't know i don't know yeah i don't know you know i hope wonder woman is good but i also I, don't, I just don't know. It's it's a, yeah. Like I would don't want to go in because we they did we ever talk about that Wonder Woman trailer either? We don't need to like go deep into no. it. But like that, there is some stuff about like the implications of her origin, like in like what it seemed like they were hinting at with her origin that didn't seem good. like what exactly. I like just, it seemed like they were sort of like kind of building up that she and like and they have done this in a couple of different ways in the comic books. Of her original origin is that you know she's obviously she's an Amazon who's from the Themyscira, the island. And that's an island that has only women on it. And so they want a, a new child. And so to get the new child, the gods make a new child out of clay. And that is Diana. That's Wonder Woman. And so and she's given all these powers by the gods. And then she goes out into the world of men and, and saves people. That's like that's her original comic book origin. And the comic books have played around with her origin. In the New 52, they did a sort of thing where she was really the daughter of Zeus that I thought was okay like that revamp mostly because that series of Wonder Woman that I never saw all the way through but I read probably like the first 15 or so issues of it was was written by Brian Azzarello and it was a really good Wonder Woman series even though I didn't necessarily love the idea of changing her origin that way I thought the way they handled it was fine and it kind of seems like in this trailer they're hinting at that's more the direction they're going in and more specifically it seemed like it's not just they're going they're hinting at it going to be Zeus we know that's not in the trailers, but we know from like leaks and stuff and set shots and shit that the one of the main villains of that movie is going to be Ares, the god of war, who's a villain from the Wonder Woman franchise. And 
it, the implication of a couple of lines of that trailer was very much, oh, she's probably the daughter of Ares, and that sounds oh. fucking stupid. Yeah, they have said in the literature, like the press releases, that she's the daughter of Zeus. So that's oh, gonna that's they? gonna be the starting point. I mean, that could they yeah. could still make her the daughter of Ares. Yeah, because it, because it's just very much the trailer was hinting at there being a twist about who she really is, and it's like you don't need to. You know, yeah. We don't need to do this. We like, and that's well. It's one of the reasons why I didn't necessarily love the Zeus thing. Is there's something weird about trying to sort of, of having Wonder Woman and making her like, because the whole point of her original origin is that it has nothing to do with men, and she's like the first female superhero. And there's something weird about revamping her superhero origin to be entirely about daddy issues that I don't like. And see, that's my problem with the trailer. Is yeah. That movie looks a lot more like it's about the Chris Pine character than it is the Wonder yeah, Woman Steve character. Trevor, which I've never liked that character even in the comic books. And I have no problem with Chris Pine. I have no problem with Wonder Woman having a male friend. Sure, it's yeah. the it's the centralization of that character where it looks like he's kind of our POV character. Right. And I don't know. You add that, what you were talking about, about it being about daddy issues. That just sounds like, I mean, the movie's got Zack Snyder's name all over it. He's got a script credit, producer credit. That's the kind of way he would write a female superhero. Right, yeah. Again, this is the guy who gave a sucker punch to the movie about how the only way for women to be free is imagine themselves in a brothel. Yeah. So, yeah. I just, I very much worry, like, if you're putting your hopes on this being the feminist salvation for superhero movies, I don't think it'll be that. No. I would love it if it were. Maybe go watch Supergirl. <laughs> right, yeah. I just, you know... Those things exist, no, just not in... Go in, read the comic books. There are plenty of really great female superhero characters in the comic books, especially right now. Yeah. So. And, you know, we're going to get a Captain Marvel movie eventually. Yeah. That'll probably be good. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we'll see. Um, good trailer. Okay. Spider-Man Homecoming. Yes. Could this movie look any better? No. Okay. It looks... Moving on. ...fucking awesome. <laughs> it looks so good. Man. Oh, like... Just, I mean, they're really heavily pushing in the marketing at this point the ties to the MCU with Iron yeah. Man and Avengers Tower and those things. And that would annoy me if it weren't for the fact that they so clearly have thought of a real story and thematic purpose for Tony Stark to be there. Yeah. And that is so apparent in the trailers. And, like, you could argue I think this Homecoming trailer maybe gives away a little too much. But yeah, like, I wish it held a couple of things back. But Yeah, but overall, I'm fine with it because I like that it, it gives us a really clear direction for the story. That this is a real coming-of-age story for Peter Parker where he's this teenage... Really making him a teenage superhero who is probably not ready to do the things he's trying to do. Yeah. But is going to have to become ready with or without Iron Man. And I love that as kind of a direction. And his rapport with Tony Stark looks so great. It looks like a really clever way for them to get around doing Uncle Ben is have yeah. Tony Stark. And just, I don't know, I love, my favorite thing in this trailer, and it was kind of one of my favorite things in the first one, but I loved it here, is his friend. The, yeah. I forget what the friend's name is. But like just having like this dorky teenage friendship where one of them, like he finds out he, Peter is Spider-Man and starts like wearing the mask and yeah. stuff. Like it just looked really fun and organic and natural. And, you know, you add in fucking Michael Keaton as the villain. That looks, it looks so good. Yeah. And it's just, it's, I really love that they're finding a way to make a, like, this new Spider-Man movie and not make it, at least, like, based on the two trailers we have, not make it this, like, really generic superhero origin movie. Because, like, there is no hint in these trailers, and who knows, like, I would not mind if they had, like, a small scene that sort of more directly referenced how Spider-Man got their power, got his powers, just in case there's one person on the planet that doesn't know that story. Or if they have any kind of interesting twist on it or something. Yeah, yeah, so it's like, I wouldn't mind if they cover it a little bit, but it definitely seems like these trailers are indicating, nope, like, this is not about Spider-Man's origins in terms of how he got his powers, 
but it is still an origin movie in the sense of how does he sort of start taking the responsibility of being this larger sort of superheroic force. Kind of in the way that, like, I wish maybe Man of Steel had gone in more of where that movie ends with this, like, oh, maybe now he can kind of be Superman, except for not really, like, he still needs to do these couple of extra steps to really be a superhero. And, like, I like the idea of just making that movie at that point where he's been doing this for a little bit. Like, he has a bit of experience under his belt, but this is the first time he's facing this real larger threat and forcing him to sort of face up to the realities of the sort of superhero life he's stepped into and not having to sort of graft that onto all these other steps of, like, you know, the way, like, Spider-Man 1 has to have all these things and move through all these different sort of plot points to set up all the, like, the two main characters and their, like, powers, how they got their powers, like, their family issues. Then they meet, like, there's so much material those sorts of origin movies have to move through. And the way it seems like they're sort of setting up Homecoming expedites so much of that process that allows them to tell a much more unique superhero story that's not just going to be you know marvel like marvel superhero movie number one number 50 you know the way that like i love doctor strange but the plot of doctor strange is extremely formulaic like i love the first thor movie i love the first iron man movie i love a lot of those movies but at some point those movies have the same exact structure and hopefully and it seems like these trailers indicate homecoming is not going to have that issue not at all. I mean, you know, what doomed the amazing Spider-Man movies is that, you know, corporately, they just missed a bunch of shots. They called a bunch of shots wrong. Yeah. And said, you know, we're not, you know, the, the, the thing they should have done for that was just recast Tobey Maguire and keep going like James Bond it. That would have worked. And yeah. they decided not to. And they decided to reboot it. And they decided to this and that. And just basically make more Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies but not continue Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. And so those movies were kind of shot in the foot from moment one. Yeah. Even if I think the first one has a lot of good stuff in it. Sure, yeah. It was um, a promising start. Yeah. And then um, Amazing Spider-Man 2, just a good God. But, like, Spider-Man Homecoming looks like, one, corporately everyone's calling the right shots, which is just primarily let them make a good movie. Yeah. And let Peter be a kid, and let the stakes be relatively low. This is not, there's no shot of, like, Vulture in the trailer getting an Infinity Gem. Yeah, and, and like, shooting a giant space laser into New York City. Yeah, I don't think, I don't know how you could graft Vulture into one of those stories, but if you did, it would be really bad. Yeah. Yeah, like, this is, you know, Vulture is one of the first Spider-Man villains, and he's often used in that kind of establishing a hero way of... This is like one of the street level villains he faces, and I like that, and I like that as a thrust for this story. Yeah, I mean, his whole power is that he has a wingsuit that allows him to fly around. He's not exactly like the most intimidating dude on the planet. He's not Doctor Doom. Yeah, no. So it just it feels like they're calling a lot of the right shots, and then the movie itself doesn't look like any other Spider-Man movie. It's not recreating any famous moments. It's not trying to recapture the tone of the Sam Raimi films. It's just being a new, different kind of Spider-Man movie. Yeah. And you know, they also released a series of posters with this trailer. Yeah. And some of the posters I actually didn't like because I thought they looked too much like generic Spider-Man posters, like where he's just like hanging off a roof or something. Sure. But they did that one poster where the city's in the background and he's just hanging out with his sports jacket on. Yeah. And, and like, like headphones and just headphones. Like kind of lay, laying back being yeah. cool. And that's just that, that's a nice poster because, again, that's not the Spider-Man we've seen. I thought it looked a little too much like the Deadpool posters. Sure. But other than that, like... That's the kind of marketing that I like that they clearly have a... This movie has a sense of self, and that sense of self is different from any other superhero movie, let alone any other Spider-Man movie. And I like that a lot. Yeah. And then, of course, Tom Holland looks so great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he had such a great sort of debut in Civil War. Yeah. Okay. I might have known this, but if I did, I forgot it. Tom Holland is super British. Yes. No. Yeah. I've seen a couple of interviews with him. He is really good at masking that. Yeah. No. He's... he's (laughs) 
it is one of those things that it's always sort of surprises me when that like yeah. there are so many British actors that can do such just like great American accents. Yeah, and you do you have that in, like that moment where you see an interview with him, you're like, oh fuck, right, that's his voice. Okay. Yeah, I saw they did this video featurette on Infinity War, and that's where I saw that, right, and I'm yes. like, and it's it's actually interesting because. Uh, the way he Americanizes his voice is actually really good for the character because he has a somewhat deep voice when he's British. And yeah. when he goes American, it gets higher, which is good for this age of Peter Parker, I think. Yeah. But it's just, it's like you wouldn't expect that in a million years. He's really good at the American accent. Yeah. Especially for a kid, you know, like he's 20 years old. That's, that's, I, I, that's a hard thing to master, I imagine. Yeah. I wonder if, like, on the set of Infinity War, that he and Benedict Cumberbatch are getting together and trading stories about how to do the accents. Or, like, they're just, they're, like, off on the set talking to each other in their British accents and nobody I mean, else can understand what they're saying. I mean, he's better at it than Benedict Cumberbatch. Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch has a much harder time masking that accent. Yeah, he definitely goes, he went pretty hard Doctor House in the yes. Doctor Strange, which worked for me, but... Well, it worked for me 100%, but it's, you, you can tell he's doing an accent. Yeah. That's, and there's no problem with that. And it actually works for kind of an off-kilter character like Stephen Strange. But no, he just, you know, Peter Parker as a kid has to sound very naturalistic. And Tom Holland does, and that's impressive. Yeah. So, can't wait for this movie. Yeah, it's, it is definitely my most excited for a movie this year. Yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, so we got that. Um, in, in terms of superhero things to come, uh, I believe it was Variety broke a story that Joss Whedon is, I think is, I don't know what level of deal it is, I forget what the story said, but he is either in talks or has signed a deal to develop um, with the intent that he will write and direct a Batgirl movie for DC. Uh There are a couple of different ways you have to break this story down. Yeah. One is, if we lived in a different world, where DC had better movies, or maybe wasn't trying to do the thing they're doing right now with their movies, this would be just... Unabated, good news. It would yes, be cool yeah. to hear Joss Whedon doing a Batgirl movie because he's good at that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but then you start breaking it down. And one, he's entering into a really broken film world right now uh, on the DC side with very broken management that from all signs is very hostile to filmmakers with a strong sense of um, style yeah. and things like that. Um, you know, just count the number of directors who have left The Flash or Batman Now, or Wonder Woman, or all of these different films. I cannot imagine a scenario where Joss Whedon actually makes it to shooting this movie. Yeah, especially, like, I would imagine after going through the gauntlet with Avengers 1 and 2, he's probably less tolerant, if anything, of that kind of stuff. And that's the third angle for this, is that I uh, was flabbergasted to see that he would be jumping back into anything superhero-related this soon, after Avengers 2. Uh, and it, it disappoints me on a, on one level just because I think Joss Whedon has so much in him and so much to give. I'm a little disappointed to see him going back to the superhero well. Even right. if Batgirl would be, I think, a very different thing and something he could lend a very unique spin to. It is, I, you know, I want to see Joss Whedon do his movie musical. Or, right. or another, like an HBO show or something like that. To make the, the fucking Dr. Horribles 2 like he's been saying for like a decade now or yeah. something. I, you know, I want to see him do whatever crazy passion project he has. And, you know, filmmakers do this a lot where maybe he has always wanted to make a Batgirl movie and the, the opportunity arose and he said, why the hell not? I'll make $50 million and then I can go make another Shakespeare movie in my backyard. Right. I don't know. But you definitely, if you like read the interviews after Avengers and you read Between the Lines, his relationship with Marvel doesn't sound that great. I think people spinning this out that he's being vindictive towards Marvel are fucking idiots. That's yeah, not that's how, not this how works. that works. This is not... 
you know, this isn't like a baseball team where like right. he left to spite. Or this isn't a comic book. Like yeah. he's not a supervillain. Like it's not. No. This isn't his supervillain origin story about how he turns against Marvel or or his his yeah. rise to being a superhero. Yeah. if you're a DC side. Yeah, person. Joss Whedon likes both Marvel and DC comics, and hey, he can't direct a Batgirl movie for Marvel. That is, that is very true. Yeah. yeah, I think there are some legal uh, impediments for that. But anyway, I think you add those kind of three different angles up, and the story to me is just confusing more than anything, and it's just very hard for me to imagine the scenario where this movie actually comes to theaters. Yeah. To the point where I don't know what if it's even worth talking about. <laughs> but it is, like, for me at least, you know, Batgirl is a character I like a lot, like in several of her different incarnations. And I assume if they were making a Batgirl movie, it's going to be Barbara Gordon Batgirl, because that's the one that everyone, anyone who knows Batgirl is going to at least know the Barbara Gordon version of that character. Oh, man. Joss Whedon could write dialogue for J.K. Simmons. Mm-hmm. That would be yeah. so great. That would, be, that would make the Justice League movie worth it. <laughs> Maybe. We haven't, that movie isn't out yet. Don't say things you can't take back. I don't have to watch it. <laughs> I fuck, might have to. You, with you somehow saw fucking Suicide Squad, man. Oh, that was a mistake. Yeah. But so, like, you know, so I, I assume it would be a Barbara Gordon Batgirl. And, like, the idea of Joss Whedon making a movie for that character is really exciting for me. It, it, like it's one step away from like the ideal in my mind Batgirl movie, which is I would if the script was written by Gail Simone, who's a like really fantastic comic book writer who has written a lot of really great comics involving Batgirl as a character. That's like would be kind of my dream team. It's like having them them tag team the screenplay and then obviously have him direct, and like that's a really exciting prospect. Like I said, like in a vacuum, that sounds amazing. But it's when you think about how the fuck does a Joss Whedon Batgirl movie exist alongside what we saw Batman as in Batman v Superman. Like, how do those even possibly exist in a similar continuity? Like, can you... Or, like, who knows? Maybe Joss Whedon just, like, leans all the way into it and it's just, like, Joss Whedon-style quips. But Batgirl is just fucking, like, cutting people's heads off, you know, with batarangs. Maybe that's maybe that's just the direction he wants to go in. Maybe that's I mean, like but, he took the the sort of like toll in his soul of making the Avengers movies, and particularly Avengers Two, when you saw those interviews with him, it felt like this guy is ragged, like he has been through the ringer trying to make this like monster of a movie. And maybe like, he just was like, you know what, fuck it, fuck trying to be funny or like make like these structurally like sound strong films. Let's just fucking just fucking kill people or, in these or, movies. Or maybe he saw. Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad and was so offended to his core as a human, yeah. as a feminist, as a writer, that he decided to get a job with DC movies and do like the most subversive thing he could and Batgirl will just be a send-up of the shitty Zack Snyder DC movies. Probably not. No. But I could see that too. Maybe they just came to him with like a lot of money and he was like, I'll at least consider it. Yeah. I mean, that is the thing. They are throwing around enough money, they can probably get anyone to the table for at least a meeting. Right. Because, you know, meetings don't hurt anyone. Um, actually, making the movie might. But, I mean, <laughs> I just I want people to remember that there are a lot of steps before a script is even written, yeah. let alone a movie is cast, let alone a movie is location scouted, let alone a movie is actually shot. And any of those stages, things could go wrong. And the thing about DC so far is that those things have gone wrong more often than they've gone right. Yeah. In terms of how many people they have hired and I mean, fired yeah. for these movies. I'm not particularly convinced that they're ever even going to make, like, a Flash movie that they have been, like, trying to nail down people to make that movie for, like, a couple of years now. And yeah. It's just it's been complete chaos. I believe they are starting production on the Aquaman movie, because James Wan has been tied to that for a while, and 
I mean, that means that we will have an Aquaman standalone movie before a Flash standalone movie, which is a weird world to live in. Yeah. It's not the weirdest world to live in, because we already live in the world where Suicide Squad came before all of them. I mean, but, don't forget, we live in a world where Suicide Squad won a fucking Oscar. I mean, you finish the podcast. I'm going to go slip my wrists. Okay, well, what's next on our... Oh, actually, there's a bit of news that we missed the talking about that I think I'm going to... While I have brief control over this podcast, I want to bring attention to, because it came up... I think literally as we were recording the last podcast we did, and that is they have announced that they are making a sequel to one of, or arguably the best video games from last year. They're making a sequel to Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. I forgot to put that on the outline! And it is oh called, it has the best title of any video game since Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. It has the title, Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth Hacker's Memory. I, okay, I'm putting the knife down. Yes. I'm, there's something to live for. Yes. I'm putting the knife down. You're I, a sequel to your favorite <laughs> game for last year. Yes, absolutely. Unequivocally, my favorite game of last year. I saw this. I remember tweeting about it. I forgot to throw it on the outline. Yeah. I am so fucking psyched. They've, and they've already announced it's getting localization and everything, so we yep. don't have to worry about that. Oh, man. that There could not be better news than that. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. other than, like, Donald Trump impeached or something. But other than that, there couldn't be better news than I that. think this is the first step to the world where Donald Trump becomes impeached. We, you know, we just have to get an Agumon and a Gabumon and then Digivolve them together into Agumon. That would Agumon. be great if, like, the next Digimon story, the Cyber Sleuth game, had a story where, like, you hack into a weird president of the United States. It got like, super political. Yeah, no, and it's you like... You start hacking into his tweets. And you, you find out, yeah, like, you go into his smartphone and you find out there's an evil Digimon in there that is, like... <laughs> Causing him to go crazy and like taking over. Yeah, they're tweeting awesome. the things about Barack Obama wiretapping. It's a Digimon. That'd be so great. Yes. <laughs> like Donald Trump doesn't even know what the tweets say. He's just a dotty old man. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. This. I mean, we don't know much about this game yet, but oh man, I I love that they're doing a direct sequel. Yes, and I love that their approach for the title of it is to just put another subtitle onto it. <laughs> That's like I just hope this becomes you know this is successful enough to just be this whole franchise that every single one they just throw another fucking subtitle that is some dope like cyber hacking shit. On so it. so this one is Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth Hackers United Hackers Memory Hackers Memory okay. yes Hackers Memory that's that's a great title yes we could keep going with that. and and I love that they're keeping Cyber Sleuth in there exactly I, there's just there's so much room to grow like that game is so good like being serious for a minute yeah. Like, you don't... In like It seems like, to me, like it'll probably be a different protagonist and story. It's definitely going to be a different protagonist. It's like, yeah. the little bit they've talked about is a different protagonist, though it is a lot of the same team, and it's like the same character artist that is doing yeah. it, and that's cool, because they showed a picture of, of who the new yeah. protagonist is. Because the story of Cyber Sleuth ended very well, but there's so much room to keep going with, like, if you did a different location, and yeah. a, a different protagonist, and a different kind of set of stakes and stuff. They like this, the fundamental gameplay foundations of that game are so ludicrously good yeah. that it excites me that they're going steady on this. Yes, yeah, and it, yeah, the, the, the interview they did when they announced the game did confirm it is going to be the same sort of structural like like gameplay systems of like the Digi Farms and that kind oh, of stuff. Man. Well, uh, as I, I said in my tweet, I know my game of the year twenty eighteen. So yeah. don't even try anyone else. It's yeah. I was really excited when I saw that news because that was just I just didn't expect that game to get a sequel. I know it sold pretty well in Japan, but still, we're in a heyday for Japanese games. We really are. Another one. I mean, yeah. My number one game of last year was Japanese. My number one game of this year, barring something crazy, will be Japanese. You know, you've got either Zelda or Persona Five yeah. or Mario or something. Uh, and hey, with Digimon next year, very good chance my game of the year next year will be Japanese. Yeah. So we're just in a good time for that. Yep. So that's that's. I'm glad that our podcast gets to keep like our weird Digimon affiliation. Yeah. 
Uh, Blizzard announced StarCraft is getting a remastered edition. Yes. That's pretty cool. Yeah, the the basic sort of thing that it seems like they're doing is kind of like what the Halo Anniversary Edition or like Halo 2 was, of that it is the same, like, everything about the game is the exact same. They just sort of took the assets and the graphics and, you know, cleaned them up, like, made it high resolution, made it so it's like widescreen. It can go up to 4K, so you can play the original StarCraft in 4K. Obviously, like, cleaned up the models and stuff because original StarCraft... That's a game that came out in 1998. It's an old game. It looks pretty funky in such a way that when you look at some of the models of the some of like the units and stuff that are in this like cleaned up form, and you look at it and you're like, oh, the that was the vulture unit was a guy riding a motorbike looking thing. I always thought there was a canopy, and that's what that color thing was. That was that dude's jumpsuit. Okay, I did I, like it blew my mind to see that be like I have been looking at that unit for the majority of my life and misunderstanding what that art was rep- trying to represent. Yeah. But yeah. And you know, for someone who's never played StarCraft and for other people who haven't, this probably makes it at least marginally easier to try it. Yeah, yeah. It's just a cool you know, it's probably, in my opinion, the best strategy game ever made. It's the best strategy game I've played. It's one of the best games ever made. Like, it deserves to have a nice version of it for posterity that people can come back to. Because there are, like, some computers have a kind of a hard time actually playing the original StarCraft in some of those old Blizzard games because of, like, the engine they were made on is just not necessarily supported by every graphics card that is made today, you know? Yeah, so this will be a lot easier to run. I I assume, like most modern Blizzard games, you'll be able to run this on whatever you want, you know? It probably won't bring it to consoles because I don't think you could bring StarCraft. No, unless you know, maybe they just take StarCraft sixty four and clean that up and put that back out and say it's like, here we go, we made one for consoles once. We they could do it again. And finally, Destiny two was officially unveiled this week in the most we don't give a fuck strategy ever, which was random Twitter picture, yeah, followed by thirty second ad, followed by two minute ad, followed by release date. Yes. So we know it's coming to PC. Yes, that's nice. Also, PS4, Xbox One, next-gen exclusive, coming September 8th. Yeah. So we got that, and uh, that full trailer, they are leaning hard into the comedy. That's about the one thing we know about Destiny 2 at this point. Yeah, it seems like the marketing team is probably tr- like desperately trying to erase the image that a lot of people had of Destiny being this sort of very sterile game that it definitely kind of felt like in its original launch. It's kind and of- so they very heavily leveraged the fact that they got Nathan Fillion to... Like, record in the original game, like, maybe a dozen lines of dialogue. It's somehow, like, he has become, like, the va- like the voice the, the entire voice of that entire video game. Yeah, I mean, I will say this. I thought in the, like, two-minute trailer, they were leaning too heavy on the jokes. Um, so on one level, I was feeling that. But I was laughing so hard at Nathan Fillion's delivery of all of it yeah. that I didn't care. Yeah. Like, I think that kind of, like, constant jokery... You can only do it if you're executing at a particular level, and luckily Nathan Fillion allows you to execute at that level. Yeah, I think particularly the the first teaser trailer I liked a lot. Like I thought that had like a good focus to it, and and I thought the reveal of the end of the camera panning out and the bar being yeah. destroyed like had a nice impact to it. The, yeah, I think the the more sort of fully featured trailer didn't have sort of quite a cohesive kind of idea to it or or like the cohesive idea it had of like flip-flopping between like the really serious Titan dude and then like the very jokey uh, Nathan Fillion Hunter dude it like didn't fully work for me but it did it worked enough and, it, and I'm just really excited I, by the idea of Destiny 2 that like whatever trailers you put out I'm fine with and here's what sold me on it was the end where he you know the Nate Cade has like he's not able to fire up the crowd so he says and there will be a ton of loot yeah. and everyone cheers that is 
one hilarious and two maybe the single most honest moment of marketing in video game history. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. you are excited because there's loot and we're gonna have Nathan Fillion shout it and it's fucking funny. I liked that. Yeah, it's just yeah, it is it is very much it feels like them sort of. And I imagine this will be a lot of the story of Destiny 2. Them trying to course correct some of the things that people like really did not like about Destiny 1. Because while Destiny 1 is an amazing game, at launch it had a hell of a lot of issues. It's know? like five different amazing games at this point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm really excited about Destiny 2. And, and all the stuff from this reveal is exactly what, if you read the Jason Schreier report from months ago, it is exactly what he was talking about then. And so that means that that report was probably definitely like... Totally on point, and everything else about that report about the broader structural changes they were making sounded really interesting. So yeah, I mean, this is going to be a, it's going to be like Destiny, but it's going to be a different game. Yeah. and I can't. It's going to be great. I can't wait. Yeah, if if Destiny Two executes on the full promise of what Destiny One had to offer, but couldn't totally execute on, like that is in contention to be arguably like the best game this year. Like even among stuff like Breath of the Wild and Persona Five, like Destiny One. Is still like even with all the issues it has, in my opinion, Destiny One is still the like most defining game of this generation of consoles. Is like the one that when you think about like what is the game that like everyone has talked about, what is the game that like fucking everybody has played, what is the game that has had the most mind share and, and in some ways like sort of broader influences in terms of like structure for games and like the online stuff. It's Destiny is that for this generation up till now. So I think a Destiny yeah. Two has an opportunity to be incredible. Yeah, because there's always a difference between what's the best game of a generation and what's the most influential. Yeah, like Call of Duty 4 was definitely that for the 360 years, and I, that's not my favorite game that came out on those consoles, but is undeniably the most defining game of that generation. Oh, well, 100%. Yeah, and I can see that. I had not thought of that from that angle, but I think you're totally right. Um, and Des yeah, I think Destiny 2 could be a, a real shot in the arm for Bungie and for this generation, and just for a lot of... It's going to be really interesting to yes. see. So, yeah, Destiny 2. I'm really excited. That's, yeah. Destiny 1 was fucking... That game had problems, but man... And I'm glad it doesn't come out till September. It gives us some time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, alright. So that's Destiny 2. Let's get into our mini topics. Okay. I have these in kind of a random order. Uh, I'm thinking about reorganizing it, but I don't know. Where do you Where do you want to go first with our mini topics? I don't care, Jonathan. Okay. You, just, you just pick one. I'm going to save Persona 5 preview for last. Okay. Because I think that makes sense. Sure. Um, I want to start with Zelda Final Thoughts, actually. Okay. Uh, and I want to and I want to transition into one of those other mini topics later. But um, I want to start with Zelda. Um, I don't know how deep we want to get into things. I, I think I have largely conveyed my thoughts on why I love yeah. this game. But I think I want to start with some more general stuff. Okay. And then I want to get into some minutia because I'd like to talk. We have not talked about like the divine beasts at all. Yeah. Uh, and and there will be spoilers from here on out. Again, with the caveat that this is a game where spoiler only means what it means to you. And no one can decide that for you, so whatever. Yeah, like, like, spoilers, you defeat Ganon at the end and you save Princess Zelda. Yeah, I, you know, do what you will with that information. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about other things, and I think the game's been out plenty long for us to, to do that. But, you know, I, I've been trying to think of, of defining the ways I, I love this game. So I want to go through okay. a couple of these points, because I, I made myself, like, a little note sheet, and maybe I'll make an essay out of this at some point. But I, I think if I think about the things that define it for me, number one is probably, not, not number one and like it's the most important, but like the thing that comes to the top of my head is the art style for me. Sure. That this game is like being inside a Hayao Miyazaki movie or a, more generally just a Studio Ghibli movie. It is so beautiful and imaginative 
and detailed and distinctive in its art style. I just don't think there's any other game that looks like it. There's so much world building to me just through visuals and aesthetics and how much, you know, puzzles and systems in the game rely on those visuals and aesthetics. There are absolutely more technically accomplished games I have played this generation, yeah. but there is no more beautiful game I have played. I just there and, and so much of that is personal, but like the art style of this game is so right up my alley and captures my mind and imagination and heart so much that I just love being in this game and looking at it and having that, you know, horizon that you can see from anywhere and those things about it just capture me so much. And then having the accompanying music and sound design that is so minimalist yet powerful to me. And I think, you know, it's like something to get into minor spoilers here, one of the things I love they do with the music in this game is that it almost doesn't rely on classic Zelda themes at all until the end, when you get to Hyrule Castle, and then they kind of bring it in force. And I think that's such a brilliant decision, that you get little tastes of it around the yeah. world. I mean, most of the different towns you're in is a like remix of some Zelda song. Like It was sure. most distinctive of the Dragon Roost Island theme from Wind Waker at the Rito Village. Yes. was pretty... like I really like that version of that theme a lot. Yes, but even then, it's, it's more oblique than theme remixes usually are sure it's not as in your face as some of these are and you know like you don't get the main zelda theme other than when you're riding a horse at night for over a minute like just things like that that i love that they hold back like they hold back on just like recognizable melodies in a lot of ways with this you know like the the music in the shrines or for some of the battles they're not hummable melodies and that's actually a really smart strategy this game employs in that, you know, when you get to Hyrule Castle, part of why it has the power it does is because now you're bringing back your kind of communal memories of this thing. And it's contrasted, and I think it's something the game does constantly, it's contrasted with a version of Hyrule Castle that is unlike anything you've seen. It's not, you know, when the game does rely on old Zelda stuff, it's doing it in a way that is not a clear repetition of what Zelda has done in the past. Yeah. And that's something I like about it. Um, you know, I think, to me, this is a game that has a very less is more approach to open world game design. It is long, it is filled with things to do, but to me it it never felt overwhelming. I, I feel like one of the things I love about this game, and I know this is something that in some ways you've had a problem with, but I like that it kind of gives you so little and it doesn't have some of the long-term uh, goals built into it so that it invites you to motivate yourself and create your own goals and find your own way to enjoy the game. There's just a very zen quality to the game, for lack of a better term to me. It exists kind of as it is, and it's just sort of yours to interface with, and there's something about that I find very powerful. Uh, and, you know, there's there's so much I've talked about with the interaction of the different systems I love. But to me, one of the things I also talk about, one of those systems is just the shrines on their own merits are, to me, like the best 3D puzzle game since Portal 2. And just, like, you could cut a lot of those out, and I think they would make just a good, small, like, going through the rooms. I think the puzzles are so often fun and brilliant, just bite-sized tastes of that that I love so much. Um, I, I love talked about how I like the Korok Seeds. I talked about how I like the way they use the iconography. I'm a big fan of the combat in this game. I know you aren't, but I like it a lot. Um, we'll talk about the Divine Beasts later. I think those are just amazing and beautiful set pieces. Um, I, I like the, the partially DIY map that you have and that the map is... It makes you feel like you're really on an adventure because it's a topographical map. Yeah. But for the most part, it is not a Ubisoft map of we're going to give you everything. It's yeah. You can make your markers if you want to. But the map is there to be the map. And actually, when I was trying to finish the shrines, I was amazed. I did have to look up a guide for some of the shrines because there's 120 of them. It'd be hard to find all of them on your yeah, own. Yeah. But I did not have to do that until I was past 110 shrines. And that is amazing to me. And some of that is just that I would realize, like, I would pull out my map and I'd look at the topography until I realized, okay, I have not been there. There must be something there. 
And if it wasn't a shrine, it was something else that was fun and worthwhile. And that is one of those qualities of this game that makes me feel like I'm out on an adventure. I have a map, but it doesn't tell me everything. I find the tools as I'm on my way. It, it feels like it fulfills that promise of being a real adventure that you can go out and be a part of, and I love that. And I've talked about how I love the structure of getting the Defeat Ganon quest at the beginning, and you end, like, one of the last things you see in the yeah. game is the quest marks complete, and then everything in the middle is up to you. I love all of that. I love the scale of the ending and the use of music, and I love some of the sort of subtle notes it ends on. You know, this is not a story-heavy game, and I don't... Uh, but I think the story that is there I like an awful lot. I like the progression of the memories, so... I just, this is one of my favorite games ever for so, so many reasons, and I, but I think I've covered them pretty well. So I just wanted to kind of recap some of that. Those are sort of generalized thoughts that I had when I, had this game had sat with me for like sure, a week, yeah. and I hadn't played it, so, or I hadn't been playing it constantly. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where, where I am with it. Okay. Do you want me to give into... Sure, I mean, you know, I, I think it's an interesting thing, though, where I do understand the things you don't like about right. it. Do you understand the things I do like about it? No, like because I like point. the things you, other than the combat stuff that we obviously like differ on. I like the things you like about it. I like about it. Like I think the and not just like like I think there's some things about the game that I want a lot more games to take. I think the biggest thing I like about the game's sort of design is around the map and, and like not just like the the construction of the geogra- like the geography of the world, but the the map they give you. And I like that it is that sort of topographical map that is not just fill in with a billion icons you can make icons on the map i wish that they had given you like more reasons and like more things to mark on the map like more different kinds of stamps and stuff like that and something more like maybe sort of made that like sort of element of the map a bit more sophisticated and like because at some point i just found like i wanted to add stamps to the map but i kind of lost reasons to do that at some point so i think there's element like elements to sort of improve with that but i like that it's just you know, like you said, if you're trying to look for something, if you're like trying to solve a side quest, if you're like thinking, oh, there's probably a couple of other shrines in this area, where might they be? Like all the information you need to discover that stuff is available on that map. You just have to zoom in, type, and like be like, okay, there's a weird like formation of rocks or something right there. That's probably where the side quest is. Like, and it's, it's just that it's, kind of visual information. It's such a unique rush to me to have that experience of like. Maybe without even a specific goal in mind, I just want to see what's over here. And picking yeah. that point and going there, it's just to me, it's just such an incredible rush. And so much of that is the visual and oral beauty of the game and having all of that. And also that, you know, one of the things you talk about is like, I wish you had more reasons to put stuff on the map. I kind of half agree with that, but I also thought it's almost like the design of the world is so good it renders some of that unnecessary because there are things I would think I would put stamps down for to remember but the geography of the world is so logical and is so easy to kind of remember like it's your local neighborhood that I often don't need to look things up to go find something. Um, yeah, I guess like what I was more saying was the stuff of like it, it was because the main things I would mark on the map would be like if I saw a Korok seed puzzle that I was like ah, I don't want to go out of my way to right. go do that right now I'll put a, like a leaf there or like the main one was if I ran into, like, a stone talus and I was like, ah, I don't really feel like fighting this dude. I will put a skull here. Like, and I liked, when I was starting the game, I liked doing that in, like, this sort of, like, it felt like making a promise to my future self of, like, I will come back here someday and do this. And then th- my future self never actually went back to those things. It, like, I wish there was, there's, like, a cool idea for something like that of, like, building that feature in such a way that there you can find something that, like, I'm not ready to tackle this or like I need to come back to the, or like there's something about this that I want to revisit this area again and marking that 
area on the map is like okay like i will come back here like like if you imagine an elder scrolls 6 like the sequel to skyrim having a topographical map like this which i think is what they should do instead of doing the like skyrim and like and most other games like this have done the kind of skyrim thing of the map is just like this weird like super zoomed out version of the actual map of the game and it's not the sort of like physical uh thing in the way the topographical map feels very physical I would like it if instead of like all those caves just being like things you found on the compass and when you went up to it, it just unlocked as a fast travel point. If like you had to go up and like go into your map and be like, this is a cave and like cave. It's like these are ruins. And like I think there's something about that idea that is really appealing to me that Zelda sort of like broaches the idea of that. But it ends up being like the stamps never felt like something that I never really had to engage with. You really need to play Persona Q. I just yeah, I mean yeah, I mean the Etrian Odyssey, Odyssey games are where would, that mechanic comes you from. You would love that kind of thing, I yeah. think. And it's actually but but I'm I'm saying that I think for we've talked about where does Zelda go in the future. Yeah. Not that I think there's any problem with it in this. I think they could go even further with it next yeah. time in in how to kind of build that map out and you know maybe do a smaller but denser area like, you know, uh Link's Awakening did but make the map something much more user generated. Yeah. I think that could be a lot of fun. But anyway, just Yeah. So I really love that map stuff and I think there's a lot of places that like that is where I want maps in these kinds of games to go in the future because I think there's a like in Zelda finds a good way and I think there are more ways to sort of make that an integral and interesting part of playing the game is engaging with the map instead of just going to the map to fast travel somewhere or be like where the fuck am I and just going into the map of like trying to sort of discern information about the world based on this map that you get is really cool to me um, so I like that I generally like the shrine puzzles I think they got a bit old to me at some point in the sense of I wish that there were a lot more puzzles. Like, and this is like not just the shrines, but it's something one of my sort of larger structural issues. Of I wish there were more puzzles that kind of had more phases of like building on like the concept of a puzzle and getting more complicated with it. And like, you know, in the way that something like Portal or Portal Two, especially by the time you got to an end of a series of puzzles in Portal Two, you felt like when you came into that like section of the game, you had no idea what blue gel was, and by the time you came out of it, you were like, "I could write a fucking PhD about how to use this blue gel to do shit." And it's like Zelda has a lot of really awesome mechanics, and a lot of the puzzles are really cool, but this the nature of the shrines are such that they can't. With other than there are a couple of ones that do a bit more, but most of them are like you can finish it in about like three minutes, you know, like it, unless it's a there are a couple of ones that kind of stumped me. But in general, I found like you come into the shrine, you see what it is like you see the, the name of the shrine sort of gives you that hint of what to do. And then once you do, because there's so many of them, like once you do about 50 of them, you sort of learn the natural and this is any puzzle game, but you learn the natural language of how the puzzles are designed and like what yeah. the sort of philosophy is behind them. And the problem is that like. Because you can approach any shrine at any point in the game, none of them can be that complicated. And so by like by necessity, they have to be a certain level of like sort of lightness. And that would be fine if I thought like some of the other areas of the game had like made that up for me and they never really did. But it but like on just for like the shrine's merits in and of themselves, I really like them. In particular, I liked it when you went to another area. And, like, they would, you know, you would, different areas of the game sort of have different sort of themes around what the puzzles of the shrine in that area are generally going to be about. So it's like, you know, the Goron area is going to have more sort of fiery puzzles. The Rito area is going to have puzzles that involve wind. And I really loved the Gerudo area has, like, 
They're very simple, and this is one of the areas where I wish you had more complicated ones because there's so many places to go with this. But I really like the circuit puzzles in the Gerudo area. I That's thought true. like there's some really good ones. Like this is in, in particular, it just makes a cool use of something that like I never found that good of a use for, which is that the metal items in the game conduct electricity. And I was like, finally, I can do this. I can fucking just connect these two fucking wires with my goddamn sword, and it will connect these points and solve the puzzle. Like those kinds of moments are really cool. And I think the game had an opportunity to sort of like have more of those and like bigger ones of those. But on its own merits, I think like that part of the game is really cool. And in general, it's just like the systems, the like physics and systems driven aspect of the world and the game design is to me is by far the best part of it. Like I think there's something about it get like it, and all of the, like my compliments of them have kind of like backhanded criticism. I wish the game found more ways to make creative use of this in different areas, or like asked you to do something with this, or like in the way that the Terrytown side quest, which I think is, I love the, it. it's like the only really like sort of big side quest in the game, and I, I liked it a lot. And one of the things I liked about it was, and I think they maybe do this slightly too much, but it's just a cool idea of one of the main components of that side quest was, hey dude, go chop some wood and get me some wood, and it's like. You know, obviously Minecraft games have that sort of element to them, but not a game like this never asks you to do that. And then this game also, like, unlike Minecraft, the trees have, like, this physical element of, like, existing in the world. And when you chop it down, or I generally blew them up with bombs until they asked me for, like, 50 pieces of wood. I'm like, okay, I'll go spawn at a fucking save stable and get a woodcutter's axe because it takes a long time to get 50 pieces of wood by throwing bombs at trees. But there's something I never did that. That's funny. It's that's that's the only way I ever cut down trees for most of the game. It's also a really good way to get apples. Nice. Unless the tree is on a hill, and then all the apples just go flying off the hill. But it is like there's something cool about the idea of oh yeah, like I don't have to just go around saving the world. I can contribute just by going and cutting trees or getting mushrooms or like engaging with these sort of just like physical systems in the world of having to deal with like the cold and heat and with like food items drop on the ground in the Goron area, they start to cook. Like that kind of stuff is really awesome. And like that's, it's the stuff that, and that's the side of the game, unlike the math thing of where I think it would be cool if a lot of other games did stuff like that, but it's also other games are not going to be able to do stuff like that because that's stuff that is not just doesn't just get easier because the technology gets better. That's like that takes a lot of like engineering, creativity, and effort to create systems like that. You can't just copy those ideas. And that's the thing to me that makes Zelda really special. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, you know, the primary, obviously, the technical side of this game is amazing and it is the kind of thing that. Nintendo could not have done this on lesser hardware, of yeah. course. They probably could barely get it running on Wii U, you know, and that's what they built it for. But, you know, I do think it is the... it's To me, this game is the ultimate evidence for Nintendo's, you know, kind of tactics of they're not chasing technological innovation, they're chasing ideas and yeah. creativity. And they can execute on those at a level that a lot of people are not executing on them on. And I love those sides of it. I want to say one thing on some of what you're saying about the shrines and some yeah. of that. Because I don't necessarily disagree. Um, I guess to me there's always a difference between wanting more and thinking there's something lacking in the game. And I don't think there's a lot that I felt was lacking in this game. Even as I can acknowledge that there could be you know, um, a more built out version of something. I was totally happy with what we got. Um, but one of the things, you know, I, I, I just, I think of in terms of the evolution of Zelda is that I look at the jump from Link Between Worlds, which was the first Zelda game they tried to do as this kind of large out of order Zelda. Sure. And then to this, where Link Between Worlds was clearly a testing ground for different ideas in Breath of the Wild. Yeah. And 
you know, because Link Between Worlds, you can do the dungeons in any order. And that has some things about Link Between Worlds that are just hugely liberating and fun, but also it means, you know, no dungeon can be dramatically harder than any other dungeon. Right. And there's certain things that, you know, other Zelda games have, like A Link to the Past, this general propulsion to it, that A Link Between Worlds in some ways cannot match or recreate. Yeah. Now, but I look at the jump from Link Between Worlds to Breath of the Wild, and it is absolutely breathtaking to me how much they are able to get out of Breath of the Wild doing, and how big the world can be with so little in the way of linearity. But I also think of like, yes, I do think there are ways, there is probably an idea out there, and I don't know what it is, but there's probably an idea out there to get a better kind of sense of a difficulty curve out of something like this. And I do on some level want to see Nintendo take another crack at something like Breath of the Wild, even though I don't know what quite it would look like, because I feel like it would just be another leap forward to see now that you got this out of the way, like, what do you do when maybe you do try to address those things of, all right, the shrines were great, and we love the divine beasts, but we do want to have that feeling of, like, we love, say, the circuit puzzles, and we want to find a way to get those more complex. Is there a second level of shrines you unlock when you've done one round, and those are harder, or something like that? Who or knows? maybe, like, this, this is something that I kind of thought the game actually did in a way, and I, it wasn't. It was just, like, a weird coincidence of the order I found the combat shrines in. But the combat shrines, which I think are because I don't like the combat that much, I think are generally, like, one of my least favorite parts of the game. Specifically because, even if I got a little bit tired of the normal shrines, I still liked doing, solving the puzzles, and there's that moment of, like, loading into a shrine and being like, okay, I'm going to solve a cool puzzle. It's like, combat shrine. It's like, yeah. great, I've already done 15 of these, and they are all the exact same, except for one difference is... And this was just, like, the weird order I did these all in is, like, for the first half or whatever of the game, of like, the first half of those I did, they were all the ones that are in rooms that have pillars, but then there are some that are in rooms that don't have pillars and instead have a small puddle of water in them, which is a massive difference. It's not a massive difference at all, no. but it's, like, but there was, like, a weird moment where that, like, sparked a light bulb for me because my I ran into so many water ones in a row without getting a pillar one in there that I thought... Wait, is that something that's like, the, the more combat shrines you do, does it just change? Because the shrines is one of actually the things I like the least about the shrines is that they teleport you to this weird, like, you're like in some, like, you might as well be in like a parallel dimension, like with how disconnected that is from the rest of the world. And like, you know, all the loading screens involved. Like, I don't like that part. I like how the way the shrine quests build puzzles into the open world. And I wish, wish there was more of that kind of stuff. Those are often fantastic. Yeah, those are the best parts of the game to me by far. In terms of, like, the actual, like, engaging directly with game mechanics part of the game. And so, like... But the one thing, the benefit of, like, teleporting to this, like, totally sectioned off part of the game of, like, your enshrined world now is that you don't know what fucking shrine's going to be there. You have no... Like, unless you're talking to someone else and they say, oh, my shrine on that place was a totally different shrine in that specific spot, you would have no idea if... They just changed, so it's like the Goron ones you entered, each shrine you entered was like, this is Goron Shrine 1, this is Goron Shrine 2 in terms of the level of difficulty, but whichever one you enter is just like, if it's the first one you find in the Goron area, you go to Goron Shrine 1, if the second one you find in the Goron area, you go to Goron Shrine 2 to give you that sense of difficulty curve. I think something they could do. I think that would have been a potential solution to that problem that like, I sort of I, stumbled upon I, in my, my misreading of what they were doing. And I am of two minds on this, because I do see the creative justification for saying there's an even playing field here, sure. and we're not trying to do a harsh difficulty curve, 
we're just trying to like have all the pieces out there and you kind of do them as you do them and that I, I see the creative justification for that while I also I didn't feel this much but I do understand the desire for more of that curve and I will agree with you in general on the combat shrines mm-hmm. I actually I like the idea of the combat shrines sure I do agree I just wish they were like they should like they could even keep it to guardians they could just be different types of guardians and other guardian designs and things like well, that well I mean it should have like the combat shrine should have been like interesting combat scenarios that are not the kind that you would just run into yeah. in the open world and like instead of it every single one is the exact same fucking enemy that has the exact same move types that move through the exact same progression of moves that's like yeah I I found really, them and, and it is exacerbated by the fact that it is generally true throughout the whole game that there's like you fight basically three primary enemies with like three or four special enemy types no matter where you are in the game world and that's one of my biggest issues with it okay and you know i found the the combat shrines for like maybe the first half of my playthrough i enjoyed them because they were harder than i was at often and so they were interesting like trials of like what can i put together to get through this but there wasn't there there needed to be like there's there's minor the minor, like medium and major, major, whatever they didn't call it. Medium, I needed like a major plus at some point to like major plus it. plus. Major, like, yeah. like, but it doesn't. And this is like the thing with the combat system is at some point it doesn't matter how much health the enemy has and how much damage they do unless they have so much health that you just don't have enough weapons to take care of them or they do. Uh, actually, I think like it doesn't necessarily matter how matter how much damage they do unless they one shot you, and so like. If they did major plus plus, but it is still the exact same enemy type with the exact same move set, like at some point I just stopped getting hit by them because it's I know exactly what they're going to do every single time because every one of those fights went the exact same way. It's like it just depended on how long it took you to get their health down to the next stage of their sort of like AI sure. behavior, and that was it. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think they could have done it better. I didn't generally resent them um, because I mean there's so many shrines that. They, they do make up a relatively small sliver of them. You know, the majority are still puzzles sure, or, yeah. or uh, shrine quest shrines. Um, you know, and if you do... Some of the shrines obviously are the blessings, but those only happen if you did, like, some kind of puzzle in the world, generally. Yeah. Although I found it fairly inconsistent when, when there would and wouldn't be a blessing shrine. Because sometimes I would go through a wild puzzle in the world and be like, that was amazing. I'm sure there's going to be a blessing. And then there would be a puzzle shrine. And I didn't resent it. I was just like... I don't understand. Yeah, the design philosophy sometimes was like, like, how did you, how, like, how did you determine which one of these you just dump into, and I have get a chest, and I'm good, and then which ones are like I dump it, and then I have to like put stasis on this thing and hit it, and then I'm good. Right. I I never felt cheated by the blessing shrines. I just didn't always understand why they were. Yeah, the logic of the placement of some of them. Yeah, I had that as well. Um, but no, I yeah, I, I think they could have done better on the combat shrines. But to, to me, it doesn't bother me that much. And, and again, for a while in the game, I did enjoy them. There, there is there is just that point where, and I guess you felt this a lot more than me. But I felt I wanted more out of that. Again, relatively small part of the game to me. But yeah, yeah. And let's see what what part do we want to move on to? Because I don't want to. Because I have like a like laundry list of kind of like almost like maybe a small rant I want to go on of like my issues with the game. I don't want to do that yet. Like I want to. Stay on a more focused path. You can do that if you want, and then maybe we can end with more positive things. So I'm not sad. Okay. Okay. Sure. I will. I. I don't know how long this is going to go on for because I did like this game is very close to my heart. So be gentle. Okay. And uh, I will preface all this with saying I have not felt this way about a video game since I played Metal Gear Solid Five in a number of different ways. 
in that I think Metal Gear Solid Five is one of the most impressive video games of this generation. It is the game that, like it still has like the highest bar to clear in terms of if you want to do stealth action combat in the game. Metal Gear Solid Five is the best that has ever been done. At the same time, there are severe, severe structural and narrative issues with that game that hold it back. I like Legend of Zelda more than Metal Gear Solid Five generally, but like. I have the same sort of sensation, I had the same sensation of hitting a point with the game where it was like, I kind of really, like, I would not have finished this game if we were not doing this podcast. I know that for sure. Like, I just, like, hit such a period of fatigue with it. I was so innervated by the game for a number of reasons. I guess I'll get into those reasons now. My issues with the game are sort of, I think I can structure them as sort of like three broad complaints. It's the combat, there's... The broader structure of the game, which is like with that, has some issues with the way shrines and the side quests and all that is constructed. And then there's also sort of a sort of design philosophy of the world that I have an issue with that sort of kind of really defeated the kind of romantic adventure aspect of the game, which is the most important part of the game is that it is trying to sort of achieve this sensation of giving you this feeling of exploration, discovery, and adventure, which is what all the Zelda games are like ultimately kind of trying to convey ever since the original one. And I think there are a lot, and we've talked about a lot of these, of a lot of awesome design things that they do in Zelda, like the map, like the physics-driven systems of the world, that are great at delivering that. But enough of those three elements of it fall on their face for me that it does not, that, that it really just sort of defeated the game entirely. So I'll start with the combat. And I don't need to go super in-depth because my feelings on the combat have not particularly changed since the last time we did uh, the podcast. But in general, I think the combat feels very sloppy. I think it is very easy and it's and honestly my biggest issue with the combat is that there are so few enemies to fight in this game and that no matter where you go in the game you're going to find the exact same types of enemies everywhere in that game map and those enemies are well I there's something I respect about some of the AI design particularly for the Bacoblins and I like that as the enemies sort of level up and like rank up in their difficulty and like how powerful they are in their sort of like ranking system they get sort of different behaviors and have slightly different tendencies and they tend to sort of prioritize their own survivability more the more powerful they are and you see that most distinctly with the Bacoblins and I think that's really cool the issue is that the combat is designed in such a way that every single fight, all you need to do to win the fight is use the Flurry Rush ability, which is when you dodge an attack with a like pretty generous dot like like window, you get a slow motion opportunity to just like wail on that person for basically like two attack cycles and do a bunch of damage. And for the the normal like Bacoblins, Moblins, Lizalfos, you don't really need to use that that much. You can just kind of wail on those dudes. But for the more like the bigger enemies, they all have like sort of the exact same attack patterns. They have the exact same windows that are entirely predictable to be able to trigger this very generous slow motion attack. And so for the bigger fights of like the harder guardians in the uh, combat shrines, and particularly the Lynels, all you need to do is spam that one attack to win every single fight. And like, and that proves for like a lot, like the boss fights are generally that way. That if it's not something that you can just spam the attack button on and kill it before it can open with a, its first attack, you can just stand there and wait and backflip and then hit it over and over and over and over again. And I found that became so insanely tedious, and I kind of didn't want to try to rely on that. But it was so much more effective than any other way to try to approach combat. Even like there's a lot of fun stuff. And early on in the game, I was doing a lot of more fun stuff of like, oh, you can, you know, oh, I'll chop this tree down and like roll it down into their camp and they'll do some physics damage. It's like, that's fun stuff to do. But at some point, like 
this is a game I spent probably like 70 or 80 hours playing. I not I don't have the energy in me to try to approach every single enemy camp and do that every single time and do the setup and do all that. Like I can do that every once in a while and it's fun, but in general like I think the core combat mechanics of the game feel bad. And a part of it is I will totally recognize that there are so many sort of basic similarities between the combat system in this game and the combat system in Dark Souls and it's like it's not a totally fair comparison to make because the games have sort of different aims, but at the same time like the Dark Souls style games are such a masterful execution on the basic Zelda form of combat because the basic combat structure those games got is from Ocarina of Time. It is lock onto an enemy, circle around them with your shield up, wait for an opportunity to attack, close in and attack and like do damage. And that's the basic structure of that combat system. So that comes from Ocarina. But it, it does feel like something about the design of Breath of the Wild, the combat is so sloppy that like trying to move and attack at the same time is not snappy enough. Dodging is like weirdly sort of like slow in a way that they needed to put in this generous slow motion attack to be able to make the combat particularly against an enemy like the Lionel just basically function and that and it just kind of felt cheap in in a way that it's like I don't want to have to approach combat this way I would love if combat was more like an Ocarina or like those sorts of Zelda games or like a Dark Souls where you don't get this big slow motion like attack and that's how every single combat encounter went I like more just like roll through attacks, get behind, like have a really nice, feels really good, normal dodge attack that has like a couple of invincibility frames in the middle to allow you to dodge attacks, get behind enemies, like allow their, like find holes in their attack routines and exploit those holes. And that's something where like I straight up, I, Jonathan, you have uh, Ocarina of Time on your Wii U and I loaded that up a couple of days ago just to be like, play around with it a little bit and sort of like see how that game feels after playing Breath of the Wild and straight up the combat feels more snappy in that game than it does in Breath of the Wild and it's like and that's something that is really surprising to me and is like really frustrating and it's something I felt like when I started it of just like just sidestepping the little side hop to the side in Breath of the Wild is so slow and weird and hoppy instead of being this quick little dodge to the side to get behind an enemy to sort of get to, to open up this weakness in their attack pattern it, that feels way more natural. It's interesting to me. Uh, I almost never saw the flurry rush command. Okay. I almost never interfaced with that. Okay. I am someone who doesn't generally like the combat in the 3D Zelda games. Okay. I tolerate it in Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask because I love so much else in those games, but it is... By far to be the clunkiest thing in those games. And I don't like Dark Souls-style combat at all. I cannot get into those games. I've okay. tried Dark Souls, Bloodborne, you know, and I think I've given those games a shot. I just can't get into them. So, I mean, part of this is I think you and I are fundamentally, are approaching the combat from fundamentally different angles. Okay. And I guess I just played it in a very different way. Like, like what, found, what was the, what was like a, like, how did you fight a Lionel? Like, what was that process? I saw my face a lot. Okay. <laughs> and, uh... I mean, because I only died to Lionel once in the whole game, and that's not Jesus me trying Christ. to okay. say like I'm some super pro gamer. I just think like they yeah. have three different attack patterns that yeah. they move through. No, I'll answer your question, okay. but you're not a super pro gamer. You are someone who's who's played these other games, though, yeah. and and I I do wonder if, and I'm not saying this to criticize your opinion of it, okay. but I do wonder if they had a more fleshed out combat system like some of what you're suggesting. If the people who like this game in the way I like it would like it as much. Sure. I because to me there is something 
Like, I can casually pick up that combat, and I feel like I just instinctually get it. Link moves the way I generally want him to move. And I generally... I don't know. I don't... I don't even go in for combat all that much. You know, I use a lot of arrows and kind of environmental things. Um, I do like... Uh, I don't know. Like, like uh, with fighting a Lionel, it's often for me about figuring out, you know, when I can kind of go in, when I have to go back. But I didn't often... I was not that good at figuring out the enemy patterns of, like, being able to hit a flurry rush every time, okay. for instance. So, like, when I saw Lionel, for me, it was often about gearing up and getting a meal and then going in and figuring out kind of what item I had would give the most damage and what way I could slow the thing down with, like, an arrow or something and then going in, backing off. I would often get hit, though, because I'm, I'm, I'm not good at that kind of, I don't know, twitchy, like, figuring out enemy patterns and, like, moving around and dodging okay. and rolling and, all, and that kind of general... The 3D combat stuff that is not my favorite kind of thing. Like, honestly... The combat in this game, even though it has clear links to, like, Ocarina of Time, feels much more like an approximation of combat in a 2D Zelda game. And sure, yeah, no, that is 100% true, in that it is bad. Okay, and I don't think the combat in 2D Zelda games is bad. I, like I mean, the, it's, it's bad, I say it's bad in that, like, the 2D Zelda games don't focus on the combat almost at all, so it's that, fine for those games. But that's my point, is that I feel like this game even treats combat generally similar to the way the 2D Zelda games played. And I played three or four 2D Zelda games in a row right before I played Breath of the Wild. So that's the mode I was in, much more than comparing this to a 3D Zelda game. And I just think like there's something about the way 2D Zelda games approach combat, which is it's there and it's something that is in the world and it's a nice like diversion to go with, but that, that is by no means the focus of those games. And I often felt that about Breath of the Wild. Like that's out there in the world, but you, you, know, you don't even have to approach this like traditional combat if you don't want to to beat a lot of those enemies. Sure. with a Lionel or something, you have to get in closer and be better at it. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, think, the, I think the whole game is frankly structured a lot more like A Link to the Past or one of the uh, Link's Awakening, a 2D Zelda game, than it is any of the 3D ones. And I think combat goes in that direction, too. But I think, like, the game, especially, like, in the, like there's so much empty space in the game, and there are, like, so many, like, these little enemy camps, and there's... Other than, like, the shrines, there's, like, the game is so big and wide and vast that, like, you need something to occupy some amount of time that's, like, because there aren't that many puzzles in the open world that are, like, other than, like, Korok seed puzzles, which are, like, not really puzzles at a certain point. Like, there's only so many times you can show me a circle of rocks that has one of the rocks missing, and I go, I wonder what this is, you know? And so, like... I think on like a 2D Zelda game, those worlds are relatively compact and they're much more designed around like getting to the dungeons and solving the puzzles and sort of like exploring and sort of like figuring out how to progress in the world of like Link to the Past. That's what the game is and like the combat doesn't need to be much of anything because like you just like zip around that game and like there's no sense of dead space that much in Link to the Past because so much of what you are doing constantly is solving a puzzle to be like, whether it's a big puzzle that like a dungeon is structured around, or it's a small puzzle that is designed to be like, well how do I even get to this dungeon in the first place, where sure. do I go next and Breath of the Wild doesn't, because of the broader structure of it, that is so open, it is such a sort of flat world in terms of its design, obviously not in terms of its like actual sort of like elevation but it's this very flat world where you can go wherever you need to go at any point in the game. It doesn't have those elements, and so it feels like combat is something that can fill those gaps if it had a better combat system. Sure, but I, I enjoyed the combat whenever I engaged with it, okay. and I enjoyed coming up on a team of Macoblins. And I, I guess I don't disagree that there are a relatively small number of enemy types... And there's not that, you know... Like, I encountered... I literally, because I was counting, I encountered more different enemy types within, like, getting up to Jabu Jabu's belly in Ocarina of Time than I did in all of Breath of the Wild. 
Okay. Like, as long as you don't count, like, blue bokoblins as different than red bokoblins, you just say bokoblins are bokoblins, because they are basically just yeah. bokoblins. There is a startling, startlingly few number of enemies in this game. Like, like ignore just, like, other Zelda games. Like, it's something like The Witcher, something like, almost like any other sort of fantasy RPG, like something like a Skyrim, anything else. You have a much larger number of enemies to sort of deal with. It felt like in this, it's just like, you fight... As long as, assuming you find a Lionel and you you find a Guardian, and ignoring obviously like the five bosses that are in the, or I guess kind of six bosses that are in the game, you fight every single enemy that is in this game. And I fought every single enemy type that is in this game within the first five hours of playing it. And that to me is a significant issue because that's... Okay. I mean, I will say, you you are naming a lot of games in your comparison where I don't like engaging with combat in the open world. Okay. Like, I appreciate that the combat in The Witcher, for instance, is very good, and I generally liked it when it was part of a mission or something. I, in, in games like that, I would much rather go around and not have to fight things. It's just mm. not something that engages me all that much. Like, to me, one of the things I loved about this is, okay, so you're correct that there are not that many overall enemy, like, species, Yes, say, even though there's subspecies and stuff like that, right? Right. Um, but like one of the things I love doing in this game is uh, I love the Hyrule Compendium, and I love sure. getting all the pictures. And like that is, I haven't talked about that on the podcast yet. It's one of my favorite things about this game. Somebody on this development team fucking loves Metroid Prime because that is straight out of right, Metroid yeah. Prime, and I love that thing, the, that element of it. And I love like in an enemy encampment. Okay, I probably have a picture of a blue and red bokoblin and stuff like that. But I might... Okay, here's a silver bokoblin for the first time. That'll only happen once. But they often have different weapons and stuff. And you can, you know, whatever they drop. That, to me, was always exciting because I wanted to get a picture of it. And I love those kind of user-driven uh, bestiary kind of things. Sure, yeah. I love that element of it. So, But that's kind of often where I was approaching combat from was... What am I going to find here that I can kind of document or I can do with that? The, the combat is almost secondary to me, I guess, in some ways. But I, I, that's just, you know, generally in open world games, that's not, especially these kind of 3D combat open world games, that's not the thing I love. Like Final Fantasy XV, for instance, is an exception to me because that feels much more like a, a JRPG system. Sure. And, and that was another one that you kind of had problems with that I didn't. So yeah. in a similar direction. But I mean, although, like, at least with Final Fantasy XV, like, the, even if I thought, like, the actual combat systems were pretty simplistic, like, at least the combat looked fucking, like, spectacular, and it was just, like, was insane. Yeah. Like, that, that, it definitely had that going for it. And, like, I just found the combat in Zelda was extremely dull, to a point where, like, you know, I'm someone that, like, I do enjoy the combat in these kinds of games. Like, I, I really like the combat in Witcher a lot. I mean, it has its issues. It's not as good as something like Dark Souls, but it, it's... It's really like engaging to me to go around and like fight a new monster in Witcher Three and have to come up with how do I de- like defeat this Griffin? How do I defeat this werewolf? How do I defeat this this siren? Like you know all yeah. those different monster types. I, and I, I guess I just kind of I do gravitate more towards in a game like this more flat enemy design. And it's something I like about the two D Zelda games too is that when you're going through like the enemies are going to be there to fight and to kind of use your different items and stuff with, but they're not the main obstacle through the world and that is something i like as a design in open world games and it's maybe one of the reasons why a lot of open world games leave me cold like i would i love skyrim i think it's an amazing game i would love that game a hell of a lot more if the combat hey look i am not going to tell you that this combat in skyrim is good that is not a good part no, of that that's game not, and that's not something i'm saying but like i don't know just think that uh, skyrim is actually an example i would hold up as like a good example of a, another open world game that has very bad combat very bad combat uh, but to me like it's also it's is there's too much of it in, in Skyrim. Like, there's too many things out there. Like, I 
I, I, Skyrim would be a much better game to me if it had the general pace of enemy encounters of a Breath of the Wild, which is you're not interrupted every three minutes by a fucking dragon or something. Sure. Like, it is, it is really hard in Skyrim to actually do the thing where you walk across the map and just enjoy it. The game doesn't quite let you do that, and it's something I like that Breath of the Wild does, is that, in general, enemies are not... They, they, you can go fight them if you want to, but they are not necessarily in your way if you want to get around the map. Like, that is something for, I like a lot. For me, I guess where like my issue with it in Breath of the Wild is because I like I do generally agree with you on Skyrim. Like I think there's too much combat in Skyrim, and the combat in Skyrim is not good, which makes it even more apparent that there is too much combat in Skyrim. It is, it is one of the most Skyrim is the is the best game with the worst thing in it. Sure, it, it yeah, is amazing I, yeah. that Skyrim is as good as it is, despite the combat being objectively horrible. Yeah, <laughs> but like I think one of my issues that, though then with Breath of the Wild is that like I enjoyed like running through an open field in Breath of the Wild for like the first fifteen, eighteen, whatever hours of the game of just like being in that world and climbing around and like that was fun. At some point, this game is so fucking long. This world is so big. There are so many wide open empty fields and you cannot call your horse anywhere and Link runs really slowly that this is like, this is by far the most I have ever fast traveled in an open world game. Partially because the game sort of asks you to because you need to fast travel somewhere or or at least or find somewhere to get a like one of the shrine thing or like the little totems to upgrade your your stuff with your shrine orbs you need to go to a place that has those you can't just do it from your inventory and i found myself very often in this game finding like looking at my map and looking like you know i'm not going to run there because i i ran across that field the two hours ago there's nothing new that is going to be in that field there's nothing to find here there's nothing to discover i am just going to fast travel and like I almost never fast traveled in The Witcher Three. I very rarely fast traveled in Skyrim, even like with like some of the annoyances. Being sort of consumed and just like existing in that world to me was so invigorating because I think there's it has like the pacing of allowing you to have some of the combat or something that interrupts like the wide open spaces and makes it a sort of like textured sort of sense of pacing instead of like the very very slow pacing of, of Zelda that meant that like you know I am fine with having a long run or horse ride back to the mission giver point and having that in the world and not just fast traveling back there again whereas in Zelda I've fast traveled all the this particularly after I hit a certain point of the game of round when I beat the Goron place and like I just just spent so much time running around in the game and again Link I feel moves so slowly and trying to travel by horse is so restrictive that I just ended up fast traveling all the time okay did you I fast traveled a lot like and I think the game does encourage you to fast travel a lot yeah but I also slowed down and didn't like I definitely realized I was there were some points where I would be playing and I felt like to myself like oh I'm fast traveling too much like I I like I like going through the field again so like I I had to sometimes make myself stop because they give you quite a few fast travel points yeah Uh, I will also say there's something about there's always a psychological thing to me with fast travel too of like this we've talked about this in Final Fantasy 15 a lot of like it psychologically does not make sense to fast travel in that game sometime Uh because why would Noctis be going here to here to here to here to here or something? There's something in this game of the fact that the fast travel is canonically in the game the Sheikah Slate transporting you. just magically teleport through the world. That Link can actually do that and it is not a like game-breaking... It is not an outside the digesis of the game thing. That mentally removed a block I usually have for fast traveling. For whatever okay. reason, but that's a side. That's a totally just side mental thing that games get you to think in weird patterns. Right? right. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, I, I want to move on from the combat to another issue I had with the game, which is 
the sort of which has like a lot of similarities to stuff like the enemy variety problem I have with the combat, which is this sort of broader structural thing of the game in terms of like exploring and discovering and finding things is that at some point I think since like everything in the game is other than the main quest stuff is filtered down into shrines like like way down on the priority list it's like there are Korok seeds like I stopped caring about Korok seeds relatively early on in the process because you just you find so many of those fucking things at some point they're just all over the place but it's really like you have shrines Shrine quests, which are just like another means of delivering you to a shrine. And then there are side quests in the game. And I found with like the one major exception being Terrytown that is like way more featured as this multi-stage thing. The side quests in this game are generally pretty bad. Like they are all fetch quests like go get me a snail and two dragonflies and I will give you a hearty truffle. It's like, okay, lady, I know I don't want it like... I, I was really disappointed and frustrated by the side quest stuff in the game of like, like as long if it wasn't a shrine quest, which is a different thing that like is generally will lead you to some sort of open world puzzle that will then open up a shrine for you. It was just like the side quest, side quests. They are almost universally just like you talk to a someone that person says, "I want this thing or this one like a set of five of these things that are just normal items in the open world that you can find kind of anywhere." And go get me one of those. You give me those. And some of them were like literally like the sort of like structure of. And then if you keep on finding more of these, I'll just keep on giving you more and more money. And but some of them were like, oh, well, I'll give you this like, I'll give you a pie. I'll give you. And it's like it's all like give me like basic task to go find item slash like there's a couple of them that are like clear out that outpost of enemies. I've only found two of those. And like you go do that There's task. More, yeah. You come back. That person says thank you, here's your reward, and then it stops there. And, like, that is, as, with the exception of the Terrytown, that is basically as sophisticated as all the side quests get. And I was really, especially seeing how fun and cool the Terrytown thing was, and knowing that, like, while the older Zelda games are not necessarily, like, have huge numbers of side quests, some of the side quest stuff of, like, getting the big Goron sword in Ocarina of Time, or especially, like, a lot of the stuff in Majora's Mask, even if I never really finished that game was really a really compelling part of past Zelda games. I was really disappointed that there's almost none of that in this game. It was like the doing the Terrytown one almost kind of made me mad because it's like, why is there not... Why are there not more of these kinds of things? Like, why is there not... I'm fine with having some of the bring me five sapphires and I'll give you this random... Tra- I'll give you a gold rupee. And it's like, okay, thank you, lady. Like, I'm fine with having a couple of those if there's something more to find of, like, when I clear out and I, like, clear out the Zora domain and, that like, there's something that is slightly more involved there, you know? That's just, like, not this, like, get thing, grab thing, done. That's it. That is as complicated as it gets. It's, like, a dozen lines of text is the entire structure of the side quest, and that's all that they are, like, no matter where you go in the world. That's what the side quests are. It's interesting. I very rarely, like, seeked out side quests while playing the game. Yeah. And I finished it with, I believe there's about 70-ish side quests. It gives you an exact count when you finish the game. And it's 72, I think. And I finished with like 55. So okay. almost all of them. I did not have anywhere near close to that. Okay. Because I but got I a lot of them and just didn't finish most of them. Okay. But I was going to say, I did not, I very rarely tried to finish side quests. And I wound up finishing them through the natural progression. Like, to me, most of the side quests are chances to talk to people in town. And I think... 
Like, if I were to differentiate this from Final Fantasy XV, which has a similar structure to some of the side quests, although much more egregious with how many of them there are. Yeah. Because there's, like, hundreds in Final Fantasy XV. Yeah. That's much more like an, a bad MMO in that Yes, way. yes. Um, this is not... Like, even if you think they're not that interesting, there's not hundreds of them. No. And... You know, the, with Final Fantasy XV, there's nothing interesting in, like, the writing or the digesis of that. I often found interesting character moments or little character things going on that were fun to, to read about. And some of the ones that ongoing have interesting little beats in the story progression and how they kind of end up with how characters talk and stuff like that. So I liked that. And then a lot of the ones that are technically fetch quests... So I would get that dialogue and think that was interesting. And then most of what they were asking me to get, I would wind up just kind of naturally getting through the course of playing. And then I would kind of look through my side quest list at different points and be like, oh, I finished this, 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 and this. And then I'd kind of zip around the map and kind of mark them off and just feel like, oh, that was a nice little moment. And, you know, to me, like, I liked the little pieces of writing because we talked about the writing in this game, I think, generally yeah. was really fun and interesting. Um, and, yeah, the, the rewards are not usually great. Um but, you know, they didn't bother me at all in that way. And there are some more interesting ones, I feel like. There's, there's no, Terrytown is the best one in the game and feels the most, frankly, classic Zelda-esque. Yeah. Like, I, I wish there were a few more, not quite like Terrytown, but like the Epona Ranch things in Ocarina of Time. It's something that was just a bit more involved. Something that was like yeah. that had like multiple stages to it that had like because I like the writing in the game. And that's why I wanted more of it in those places where there was a room for more of it. Because I tended yeah. to like the little tiny bits of writing you got for the side quest. But they're like but they were little tiny bits. Like in the and like I said, it always stopped like immediately and felt like well, there, you know, like like here's a really great example. It's one that's it, very early on in the game when you get to Hitano Village. There's the dude who has a crush on the innkeeper lady, right? That's and a funny one. He wants to get you, and because this is like the big, this is like one of the reasons why it sticks out in my mind is because this is where I kind of slowly started to catch on that this is the structure that the side quests have, and so he wants you. So you talk to her, and she says like, "Oh, what are the, uh, did you like?" She's like. Oh, you want to know what I like? And then you get, like, this little thing of, like, oh, who's this asshole? I'm going to just tell him something stupid. It's like, I want 100 crickets or whatever she says. It's like, and then you go tell the dude. He's like, can you get me, like, 15 crickets? And so then you run around in the field, cut some grass, get some crickets, come back, give him some crickets. He's like, thanks. And that's the end. That's that, all you get. That is one that's... But I see that as an outlier and that it seems like it directly promises more and then there isn't more. But, like, that... Because that one feels like it's supposed to be more in terms of, like, you would then go have more with the lady and she would give you something. And yeah, like, build... Like, because you, like... And I, there were a couple of other ones that felt like they kind of had that structure to me of, like, you've set up something and, like, and like it can stop here. There's nothing, like, technically wrong about not following this up. But it feels like such a missed opportunity to not follow it up. And, then, and more to the point of, like, why that bothered me so much... Is the, the, the wider issue I had with the game is that while I, for a, for the beginning part of the game, I had fun running around the world and finding things and exploring it, because that is what, like, that feels like that is the main thing the game wants you to do. That's, like, the main thing that everything and all the systems of the game are sort of designed to sort of engage with and fuel you with is the sense of trying to explore and discover things. I was so profoundly frustrated with the sense that there is so little to discover in the game when you get down to it because every fucking thing in the game is a shrine because the only thing the game has to reward you with is a shrine and a shrine orb and every no matter like where you go the only things to discover in places are shrines that's like not just like here's a kind of cool looking tree i guess because you don't find side quests almost ever like just exploring the open world they are in like the 
You like, find some. You find a couple, but like you generally, they are like in like, and you will find shrine quests exploring the open world. The side quests are typically centered around the different uh, villages you're in. But like even, but that's just like part of my issue with is like even the shrine quests, which I like more and are more involved, and I like that the puzzle is built into the open world. At some point, like they are all designed to filter you to shrines, and it, it really sort of starts slowly killing the sense of discovering stuff when everything you discover is ultimately a shrine. And I think the number one, like the the part where I realized this was like this is relatively deep in the game this is where i was like really kind of getting fatigued with it and i think i was like i was on my way to the goron section or not the goron the gerudo section which was the last part i did and there's a thing there's a shrine i think it's technically a shrine quest but i never found the thing that set up the quest and it's like this big like temple thing that is like sunk into a mountainside that you go into and there's like a sort of gauntlet of buried guardians with their lasers that you have to get through to get to the shrine at the end and since, it, like, I've, is the, did you, is that a shrine quest, if you remember specifically, is that something that someone can tell you about? Are you talking about you, the Forgotten Temple? I, yes, I think that, I, I forgot what it was called. There is, no, there's not a shrine okay. quest for that. So, but, so, I, I stumbled upon that thing, and, the, and part of the reason why I was excited by it will connect to it, another point I have about the lack of sort of, like, structures and insides and, like, interiors to explore in the game. But, like, I found this thing, I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, I haven't seen anything else like this in basically the whole game. Like, everything else has been, like, something like a shrine that is, like, resting on the surface or a little puzzle on the surface. Like, here's this, like, I'm kind of going into this mountainside. I don't know what this is. It's this big architectural thing. This is cool. There's got to be something here. And, and it was the first time in a long time of playing that stretch of the game where I had a really bad stretch of that game where I felt like I just was not seeing anything that interested me at all. And so I went in there and I was like, I had no idea what was here. And then this was also, like, another point of this is that I had had my tracker thing on to find some, like, a lizard or some shit that I had to do for one of the side quests that I was just, like, wandering around this area. And so I didn't have my shrine tracker on. And so I was, like, going through this area and clearing out through all these guardians. I was like, I, like this is cool. Like, I just haven't seen something that was like this. And this was also where I discovered that you can defeat the... You can bounce their lasers back with your shield parry, which is cool. And so I went through that whole area... And I was like, I wonder what's going to be here. And then you get to the end of it, and it is a shrine. And I, when I saw that shrine, I had this like, like really guttural sort of reaction. Just like, oh, right, of course, it's a shrine. Because everything in this game funnels you down to a shrine because that's the only thing that's in this fucking game. Everything is about like getting shrine quests. You have your shrine tracker. The shrines are the main like sort of icons you see on your map of like of when you unlock them because they serve as fast travel points. It is the only meaningful progression level of progression of the entire game, kind of outside of getting equipment. But even then the equipment I never found like I I stuck with the same basic outfit for almost the entire game, only switching when you needed to for specific environmental reasons. So even getting new, like, pieces of, like, clothing didn't really do much for me, especially, like, at this point where I was, like, near the end of the game, relatively speaking. And so all you can find that is that meaningful, that is, like, has, like, a reward structure built around it that the game is sort of kind of telling you to go find, that is, like, what there is to discover in the world is just a shrine. And every single shrine like looks the exact same when you go inside like they have the exact same aesthetic i like i said earlier i don't really like how the shrines you have to go through this whole process of like like opening it up and going in and like skipping through the customs like going down to the thing and then getting the text and the good and like and you load into this other area and you're like in this whole separate part of the world and that to me really killed the sense of exploration 
of I want to find things that I don't know what they are. I don't like I want to discover something new. And I felt like there's so little of that. Like every once in a while you run into like a shrine quest that is a little bit more interesting that feels like, oh, this is the, like this has is a bit more elaborate and feels interesting and new. I'm like was excited upon discovering this. But in general, just wandering around the open world with like these tiny little exceptions, like there's like the ghost horsey thing on a mountain that was cool to run into. Like in general, it's just shrines. And that's like the whole game is just permeated with that. And to me, it felt like such this for a game that should be so rich and has all these really amazing mechanics that, that aid in exploration and make exploration this exciting thing to do or should theoretically and make this this very sort of organic game, the shrines feel, even if I enjoy the puzzle solving process of the shrines, the shrines are such this artificial gamey fucking thing and the fact that they are with in essence the only real thing of substance to find in the world that is not directly connected to the main quest made it so I just like didn't feel excited to go anywhere in the game because I felt like no matter where I go, like if you ask me what is over that hill, I can fucking tell you it's a shrine over that hill because it's always a shrine over the hill. Okay. Um, okay, two notes. Okay. We got to move on soon. Okay. So I'm going to have you make your last point soon okay. here and then we'll tie up and I'll just make my quick rebuttal to this. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I find that a very reductive reading of the game. Because I think I, I I don't I don't want to make that reading of the game, but like that is how I felt playing. No, I, the game. and I, I'm not denying that. Like to me, that's a reductive reading. Right. I understand if that's how you ultimately felt. That's not how I felt about it. So like, and I I understand. Yes, literally, the reward for a lot of what you do is a shrine. That's one of the things. But I just never read it as that's the only thing that's over that hill. Because to me, there's a lot of environmental things and just things to see. And how you actually get to a shrine is often very varied to me. And what you do in the shrines is, I understand there's a lot of the same elements in there, but the puzzles are all different puzzles. And you do different things with them, unless it's a combat thing. And yeah. that's a different part of the game. So, like, the shrines were an ultimate reward. But that's, to me, like, I don't know. I mean, you say it's a very gamey thing. I like that it's a gamey thing. It's, it's, it's the primary reward system to the game. But it propels... It kind of ties to me a lot of the other systems in the game I like together. Of when you're, they are a you know consistent thing to go out exploring for. But along the way, I find things I like. They're just not necessarily concrete video game things, but or like goals and like things that get checked off on a list. But so I understand what you're saying. I just disagree with that. But what's your last point you're going to make? My last point, and it's really it is connected to this like that point because I kind of hinted at it with the structure, the, like the, the going into the temple is to me, it is another thing of it sort of just defeats the sense of exploring the world, is that everything, with like the tiny handful of exceptions like that Forgotten Temple, everything in the world exists on top of the world. It's one of the reasons why the world feels flat to me. And this is kind of like the most sort of almost like abstract point of that, like, it, it took me a long time to realize, and, it's, and it was like, it was kind of around the time that we recorded the last podcast where I started sort of feeling this, is that... A huge part of the sense of, of exploration as a sort of like fantasy, like romantic concept, and, and you'll find it in fantasy literature and movies and everything, is like it's not just you're climbing mountains, it's like you're going into mountains. It's like you're not just exploring the surface of the world, you're going into a place and you're like delving into something. And there's a mystery to caves and like in, in labyrinths and. And, and like mountains and, and like temple structures and like forgotten ruins that are deep in something. And when you think about like to me, my favorite part of The Hobbit, which is was my favorite book as a kid, 
was the part where they, you know, they're exploring the mountains or they're going through the mountain pass and they go and rest in the cave and the cave opens up and the goblins drag them through. And that's like, you know, there's the, the brilliant passage in that part of the book where Bilbo is lying down on his back, like before the goblins come through and comments that like he couldn't even tell if his eyes were open or closed because he held his hand in front of his face and he couldn't tell the difference. And it's like, that is like, there's this romance about that of like this idea of exploring the unknown that is to me so deeply tied to exploring into something not just on top of something and where this and zelda just doesn't feature that at all and where this i think is the most in my playthrough was the most accentuated happened very early on and it was only till later that i sort of like made this realization of like oh this is this was this moment in this game where i learned that this is how this game is designed and i don't like that is that one of the first areas I went to after I went down from the, the Great Plateau is like I was, I was making my way to the east and you go to the, like, there's like that sunken sort of flooded village and there's a stone palace there and I fought the stone palace and all that stuff. But before I went down into that sunken village, I was using my binoculars and sort of scouting it out and I saw in the village there is a well and on the hilltop overlooking the village there is another well by this big like fallen tree trunk and I saw these two things and immediately in my mind, I was like, ha ha, there is a tunnel under, like, there's something, like, underneath that's, like, connecting these two wells. There's something in there. And I ran down and, like, I was exploring around in the town. I defeated the stone talus. It's like, oh, this is all cool. And I went over to where that one well was. And then, much to my surprise, I discovered that was not a well. That, that the, probably the reason why the civilization of Hyrule collapsed is that nobody understood what the concept of a well was. Because all the wells in this game are just circles of stone bricks with a small house-like like roof thing over it. Because there are no holes in this game. And there are no caves in this game. And every single well you run into, which there's a sort of prefab graphic of a well that is in all the ruined towns in the game... All of them are a stone circle that if you like try to go into the well, it is just grass and it's just like a ground at ground level and it's just like it's just this stone circle. And and some of them serve as uh Kuroxy puzzles of you have to put a little metal ball in the thing that is shaped like a well but is not a well to then get a Korok seed. And to me, like that is especially when you think about with my history with Zelda and the, like my relationship with Ocarina of Time. One of, like, the coolest things in Ocarina of Time is when you go into Kakariko Village for the first time, and there's the big well in, like, the middle of the town, and, like, there's a ladder there, and you see it, and, like, you see how far down that well goes, and there's all this water, but that ladder is there, and there's a sign there, and you hear people talking about there's, like, there's a monster, there's something at the bottom of that well. You know... There is something there and you just want to find out what it is for like the whole game. And it's not till like halfway over halfway through the game that you actually can go into the well. And it's like it's stuff like that or going into Dodongo's Cavern. It's that sort of sense of moving into things and delving into something is such an important part of this sense of adventure for me. And I get if like other people don't have this issue, obviously. It's a sort of fairly specific thing. But I do think it's it's a really significant problem I had with the game that melded with the all you ever find when you're exploring areas is that it all funnels down into the shrine system is also this sense of like why couldn't i find a cave that there's something down there like why couldn't i go into a well and there's something down there why can't i find some ruined temple that is there that has something in there that is not just another shrine but has something that feels unique in the way that exploring the world of skyrim when i would stumble upon a lighthouse i had no idea what i was going to find into the lighthouse if i went to a cave i had no idea what was going to be at the end of this cave 
because it's not the the reward system and the struggle like the larger game structure did not filter down into the exact same conclusion for whatever activity I did. And so that's what made ex- exploration feel incredibly unrewarding for me in a game that is like mostly designed to be re- like focused around exploration. And so I think that's why like I just really ran out of steam on this game after playing probably like 40 hours of it but like for the scope of what the of how large the game is that is a relatively early on point in the game. Okay. Um yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing. I might agree more with that if I feel like I could point to an example of a game that, to me, does that kind of thing well. Okay. Like, I don't like the caves in Skyrim at all. I, I hate going into caves and doing stuff like that in Skyrim. Generally, some of them are good, Some of, most of them I hate. Um, some of the caves and stuff you could do in Final Fantasy XV I liked. I just generally like, most of the time in an open-world game... When I'm on top of the world and there's foliage and there's nature and it feels like I'm going on a walk in the woods or something like that, that's when I feel most at home in the game. And when there are those interior spaces, that's when I feel most checked out of the game. For me, I like I want the contrast, like I want the pacing that those two things offer. Okay. Like I want to go into a cave, find what's at the bottom of the cave, and then come back out to the sun and have like the, you know the like bloom effects, and like I like my eyes have to adjust and like go back into the world. And there's like to me that is like that is like the whole romantic structure upon which like the the genre is built in the sense of like that is how like Dungeons and Dragons is designed. Like that's how like the Hobbit is. Like that's how the sort of core the roots of this genre lie is in that sort of contrast of like the big open spaces and then these like tight cramped claustrophobic areas that like that's where like you get into the meat in the heart of things and then burst back up into the world a changed person like I suppose that, I, that is like the essence of it to me sure but I again I'm, I'm trying to think of this on a video game level and I just don't like I appreciate... like I think it's something that The Witcher Three did very well. Like I liked it in Skyrim. Like I think there are and I like I said like I think Ocarina of Time does it incredibly in a lot of places. Yeah, that's like what the timbles are effectively. Sure, but I, I don't know. I I also feel like we got to move on. Super running right. uh, over, but no Breath of the Wild. Like to me, invests so much in making the the the. I guess uh, overworld, whatever you want to call it, the the the, the topographical world right. to me so interesting and varied, and you know those spaces to me are you know partially just due to different weather systems that change things, but also like you know there are the snowy areas and there's the hot areas and there's the you know the desert areas and there's the wetlands and things like that. That that is where I feel the different senses of paces of just places I go in the world. But I also find like the investment in just the aesthetics of the world itself to me are more meaningful are more meaningful to me than I think if you had more interior spaces to explore. Like it's and it's hard for me to even think about because it it's just not something the game does. It's not part of the game's priorities. So it's it's hard for me to like I could I think you could do a, a sequel to this where the shrines and this would be a bigger game design challenge, but I think they'd be up to it where the shrines are more ingrained in the world. So it's not that you find a, a shrine and it's a separate thing you go into, yeah. but maybe it's more built into the, the topography of the world itself and those are the interiors. Because I still do like the idea of the, the the orbs as the progression system and that is what you do going around the world of it upgrading your two main things of hearts and stamina. But I, I can kind of see where you're coming from of maybe you vary how you get those more and that the concept of shrines don't necessarily have to be the metallic shrines they could sure. be, you know, inside a mountain, as you say, or something like that. But, um, I mean, it's something that I didn't even think about. I mean, it didn't bother me. I, I, I was so taken with the, the world as it exists 
that that is not something that ever once bothered me. Yeah, because I think just just for me, stuff like the like going to a snowy area, going to a lava area, going to the desert, like only changes things up so much. That's like at, at some point, like kind of going through the desert and kind of going through a snowy area is almost the exact same thing. And like it looks a bit different, but like but it, for a game that is this big and you spend so much time with, I really needed something that changed up the pacing in a more dramatic way because it's just like. I needed something that felt like novel and new and exciting and like again past the first like half or so of the game I just felt like it didn't have any of that at all. Yeah, it's interesting because this is so because I I like climbing things more than going down into things and I like seeing the trees and the light and the foliage so much more than I like going into places in these kind of games. This is like to me a dream ideal version of what I I like in open world games and sure. it's the kind of stuff I like filtered out into this and I think clearly it was you know it's resonated with a lot of people that doesn't mean I don't understand where you're coming from on this but it's just something that to me like it's actually interesting a lot of things you're suggesting to me if the game had them I wouldn't like it as much so I guess it's an interesting point to be at with sure. the game but uh I don't know I think we can all conclude that I am more right about this subject than oh fuck off on. fuck off alright uh, that's Breath of the Wild maybe we'll t- there's still many things we have not talked about with this game so maybe the conversation will continue in the future at some point sure but because um, we haven't talked about like divine beasts and some of the memories and stuff like that, but I do want to move on because otherwise this podcast will be four hours long, okay. and I don't want that. But I do want to. We'll have plenty of those in the future with Persona Five. All right, we will. We're gonna. You and I are gonna have a talk off the air of how we're gonna structure episodes when Persona Five is out. Yeah, so I have a thought on how to do it, and I think I'm. I have the right thought, but we'll figure it out. Um, okay, but let's move on uh, to mini topic number two, which that last topic was a full topic. That was not mini, but anyway. Um, I was talking the other day with some of my friends in my office who, as I said, like were excited to get a Switch and play Zelda, and they were interested in it. And I, I just said, I, to me, Breath of the Wild is one of the best games ever made, and I, I put it, it is in my inner circle of my favorite and best games I've ever played. Um, but then that, obviously, that raises the question for some people, especially when they're talking to someone like you know me or you who hosts a podcast and kind of, we don't do this professionally because we don't get paid for it, yeah. but we do it, semi, we do it semi-professionally because we, we spend enough time working on it. Right. It becomes the, well, what are your favorite games then? Or what do you think the best games Games are and those yeah. are two kind of semi different questions, but it is like and, and they asked me and so I tried to list off the top of my head like five that I feel like define you know that, that I think are the best games ever made and kind of define some of my critical tastes yeah. and I think that's an interesting question. Okay, and yeah. I want to kind of go with this and go back and forth and maybe we'll both pick games until we each have five and go back and forth or something. But like off the cuff is what kind of makes this conversation interesting. Yeah. Because I would probably be able to make a better, more polished list if I looked at it, but it's kind of fun to go off the cuff and think what rises to the top of your mind. Yeah. So like for you, because I've given this some thought, because that's how I came up with this, but if you were to start like, it does not have to be in any order, but like one that comes to your mind. Do we just address Persona or do we put Persona aside as a given? I if that's where you want to start because that's where I start yeah because I start with Persona three yeah that's that's where I would start is Persona three and I would just go ahead and like lump four in with it because might as well okay. and yeah. no because I've already played it I'm gonna put five in there too okay because fuck you guys yeah I don't feel like you have to stick to one game per series for this but it's easier for me to just say Persona three as representative of the personas 
Sure. And I haven't played five yet, but Well, I'm just going to say five is representative of the personas to make this conversation maybe a little more exciting. Okay, so I'm saying persona three, you're saying persona five. Sure, yeah. And I guess for the reason it's that's the best RPG ever made. Especially JRPG. Yeah. It is the best story I've ever seen in a video game. Um, it's the best progression of characters in a game. And I think it is one of the best balances of multiple game systems coming together yeah. to create something that other mediums could not create. Yeah, it's it's one of the greatest examples I've seen also of just like using game systems to create a sense of pacing. And specifically like having kind of competing game systems create a sense of pacing that solves so much of... The issues that a lot of JRPGs have with their pacing, like even games I love, like a Final Fantasy four or six or something, or like the other, like the later Final Fantasy games and Dragon Quest and stuff like that. It's like these games are good at some point, like kind of almost like like my feelings of Zelda. It's like you're doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. It's like there's only so many times I can do like relatively small story beat and then big dungeon, then relatively small story beat and even bigger dungeon and like combat sections of these games and like just not feel totally fatigued. And Persona just does that of, you know, it has so many different arms to the point where like trying to explain a Persona game is almost impossible because there are so many gameplay systems that interact with each other in such complex ways and that's one of the reasons also just going off the cuff I would pick Persona 5 for this is I think it is an even better example of that there are like some ways that they like weave in like different ways that social links can feed into combat and stuff like that that is like even ties those things together even tighter than they've ever been I have not asked you this question yet if yeah. you think Persona 5 is better than 3 or 4. I'm glad you haven't asked me that because I don't want to try to answer that question yet. Okay, that's fine. We, that is that is a question we will fucking talk about on this podcast at some point, I assure okay. you. So we're going with a Persona game. I'm picking 3, you're picking 5 yeah. just for fun. But yeah, I mean, and the other thing I would say with Persona 3 specifically for me is that it is all the evidence I will ever need that technical merits are not what matter in a fucking game. Sometimes yeah. that matters. But Persona 3 is 100% timeless, and it was timeless the moment it was made, and it still is. You can turn someone on to Persona 3, and there are things that I suppose feel dated, but they so do not matter for that game. And yes, Persona 4 looks even better, and of course Persona 5 is a much more technologically advanced game. But the fundamentals... Even then, Persona 5 is a PS3 game. It is, it is, it is relative to that series a more technologically advanced game, right. but it is not a technologically advanced game. Yeah, and so it is one of those games of evidence of just that... Like, even relative to the generation you are in, you do not need to be playing the same technical ball game as everyone else to be better than everyone else. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point for me and my critical opinions on games. So, there you go. Okay. Persona uh, 3 also made me cry, so we'll just go with that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> like, I... I it's not to, like, bury the lead or something with, with this, but with Persona 5, the other day I was listening to a specific song on that soundtrack, and kind of, I was, like, I was doing a walk around my neighborhood in the evening, which I, I do sort of, like, every other day for fun, and, and a lot of times I listen to podcasts, sometimes I listen to Persona music. For some reason, it's almost ever only Persona music. I very rarely listen to other kinds of music when walking. I don't know why that is, but... I just like this one song played, and it is a song that plays during some of the emotional scenes in Persona 5, and I just got, like, really emotional kind of out of nowhere, and it was like, it kind of hit me, took me by surprise in a weird way. That, like, normally I don't have that kind of reaction that strongly to something like that, especially because it's not, like, the well relative equivalent of, like, Memories of You from Persona 3. Like, it's a more kind of nondescript song of that soundtrack and I just had like it I flashed to this like very specific scene I was like oh fuck I need to sit down on a bench for a second yeah yeah all right do you want to go next or you want me to go uh, next? I'll go I'll go next because I was, I was thinking uh I you know this is an obvious one for us on this podcast but we don't talk about this franchise that much right now because it is not that good right now 
but Halo, and I would specifically say Halo Three, though like Halo One is like I was, both of those. I was going to mention Halo Mine would be Halo One, so let's just take that for sure. Yeah, you go with one, I'll go with go three. With, with three, like it is both the campaign and like the marketing and like the excitement for all that. But for me, Halo Three is so much defined by the multiplayer because I spent. I forget. I, I've, I at one point I calculated how much time I spent, and I think it was literally like two weeks of my life of playing that game. Which is like, I mean, I played that game all like regularly all throughout high school and like my first year of college yeah, because I played it with all my friends. So like, it is. I do not regret a single second of playing that game. Like we made fucking like a couple of machinima movies in that when we were in high school for projects. Like. It, it is like a game that so defined my life in high school and like my friendships and stuff like that. It was this regular routine of coming home, like like sort of psychologically unpacking from school, like loading up Halo Three, saying seeing who was playing it, getting into a party, chatting with my friends, like fucking rocking it in team doubles or something. And and it was just this like always golden experience that like no matter how many times I played it the multiplayer in Halo 3 always felt new there's always something new to do in it because of how customizable it was and it was just like this game that dominated my life for so long and I have probably I would say probably Halo 3 is the game I have the most profound sense of nostalgia for specifically because it is also tied so much to the relationships and friendships I had at the time yeah and man Halo is a tough one because I could make the argument for 1, 3 or Reach for purposes of this, sure. I feel. Um, and because 3 and Reach, I kind of have similar feelings of nostalgia for because I played both of those. And Reach was more last years of high school, college kind of thing. But yeah. Um, but I ultimately go with Halo 1 in part because multiplayer, while I love it, is the kind of thing that kind of fades away over time. Sure. Maybe not in our memories, but in actual accessibility. And Halo 1, and specifically the campaign of Halo Combat Evolved, I think is just the best first-person shooter campaign ever made. It is one of the, it is maybe the best example of a, you know, of a like 10-hour campaign rather than, there's, a, there's either like 10 to 15-hour campaigns or 60 hours, there's not right. a lot in the middle. And it is the best example of that, just of telling a story completely through action and of getting you invested in characters and a world and that every level in that game is just a fucking home run, even if it is a home run of the psychological torment variety as the library is. Right. Um, I just Halo Combat Evolve is a game that I respect every time I go back and play it more. I respect it more the more I play it, and it is a game I have been playing like over half my life at this point, probably, of that campaign. And so Combat Evolve just... That one just it, that that is like again on this kind of critical like inner circle level that yeah. is one against which I judge other games and so like you know last year when we said when I said I think Doom is the best first person shooter campaign since Halo One that is extremely high praise from me yeah because of where I hold that game in esteem so yeah, yeah for me like like to go into like a little bit more like the game design stuff of Halo Three and not just like my nostalgia for it like I do think that like that is the most accomplished multiplayer suite of any yes. first person shooter I've ever played just in the sense of it was like this golden moment of like that version of multiplayer being sort of like fully idealized as this new version of first person shooter multiplayer with Call of Duty 4 was coming out like literally a month like after it I think I guess it was November so it was two months after it and like that was that moment like they perfected this kind of multiplayer which is the kind of multiplayer I prefer like I, I enjoy a Call of Duty multiplayer like I'll enjoy something like Team Fortress 2 slash Overwatch and stuff like that but for me the core of like that Halo 3 multiplayer the competitiveness of it like fed this part of me that like I is not that strong but is definitely a part of me that like you know I played sports when I was younger and like I have this competitive nature in some ways that like 
Halo 3 really just like satisfied that so much because it felt like this really con this real contest of skill between the two individuals or like two teams. I like my favorite thing to do in Halo 3 was play team doubles, which was 2v2. So good. Because that was the mode that felt like it is combining my ability to sort of manipulate these controls in an effective way, which was an important part of the skill in Halo. But it was also so much about you communicating with your teammate understanding how to use the map to your advantage and being able to come up with small like short-term tactics and strategies to control weapons to control areas of the map to have an advantage over the other team and it just really boiled down that experience into something that felt so tactical while also having this really effective action gameplay and i think that's a blend that the new like that something like Overwatch, something like Overwatch still has elements of that, but it is so much more about the team composition and strategies based around that, that it sort of loses an element of like a, we just have to, we like all we have is what we have on our hands and like on this map and everyone is on an even playing field. You are not picking a different class at the beginning and we have to figure out what we're doing with this. We know exactly what the enemy has access to no matter what. And like, there's something very like sort of, almost chess-like about building strategies in that way and not having to be like, okay, I do that. How many classes do they have? And then right. sort of figure out the probabilities on that. Like chess and then you start with the same pieces every time. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, what is your opening move? Where are you going? And like that, and obviously then Call of Duty is something that is like way different in a whole other way of like time to kill and, and that that's like we don't need to get into. But it is the the tactics and strategy mixed with these sort of action in the even playing field of Halo 3 that I still think for me personally, that kind of multiplayer has never been surpassed yeah. from Halo 3. And I guess I'm kind of divorcing multiplayer from this whole consideration because it's just such a different thing to me. Yeah. But I totally understand where you're coming from on that. And yeah, I mean, if I'm picking like, obviously a multiplayer shooter, it's Halo 3. And then there are, you know, if, I, if I'm doing couch kind of multiplayer, it's like Smash Bros. But that's, it's such a different, like there's different yeah. kind of ways. But definitely in terms of online multiplayer, I don't know if anything will surpass the rush of playing that era of Halo on yeah. 360. I don't think that, as Halo 5 to me kind of pretty much puts a nail in that coffin. Yeah. I mean, yeah. hey, if you all you ever wanted to do was play 4v4 Team Slayer on small maps. On small, poorly designed on maps. On small, mostly poorly designed maps, yes. The, yeah. the Halo 5 was definitely the game for you. Sure. <laughs> all right, so we've got uh, Halo 1 and Halo 3. Here. Yes. Uh, I will go ahead. I, uh, I have one if you want me to go. Uh, I'll go ahead. I'll, I will pick. I was really sure. I'm struggling with one that is like. I know these are the better games, but I have more nostalgia for Knights of the Old Republic, but I'm going to go with Mass Effect. Specifically, Mass Effect 2 is my favorite one, but fuck that. It's all the games. It's it's the Mass Effect trilogy. Um, yeah, one of the ones I'm going to go with, uh, was I was going to go with anyway, was Mass Effect 2. And I go okay. 2 specifically because I think the entire trilogy is brilliant, but I do... I can very easily separate Mass Effect 2 True. out as the best... The best game in that trilogy... Maybe the best game of that entire generation. Certainly, I think if you're just limiting it to 360 and, and PS3, it's the best game of that generation, I think. And I think Mass Effect 2 is just the best Western RPG ever done in terms of having. Um, it, it is. I love the combat in that. I love the simplicity and the streamlined nature of the progression system in that. Yeah. I think the writing in Mass Effect 2 is just fucking outstanding. And I think that that is a, an amazing game in that. It, there's, it is a big game and there's a lot to it, but it is episodic and it is well-paced in yeah. a way a lot of games of its length and scope are not. And so Mass Effect 2, like while I love Mass Effect 1 for a lot of different reasons, and I love Mass Effect 3 for a lot of you know conclusion kind of reasons, and I love the overall scope of those games, Mass Effect 2 does, you know, it has this very unique sense to it in the trilogy and just within the history of video games in general that I think it is the high watermark of that generation and of... 
I think of modern American 3D games in general that it is definitely in, in my inner circle and it's still Mass Effect 2. Even though if I were to make like a favorite games list, I might cheat and do the whole trilogy. Yeah, which, I would. Yeah, which isn't much of a cheat, but you know... Um, but I can definitely single out Mass Effect 2. Yeah, for me, like, like one of the reasons why I, like, I feel more compelled to say the whole trilogy now for some reason because, like, Andromeda just came out and Andromeda coming out has made me think a lot about Mass Effect 1 and, like, you know, at the time when I played Mass Effect 1, I liked the game a lot, but, like, that game has, like, a couple of pretty significant issues in terms of its structure and stuff. And, like, the, the landing on planets is really, and, like, the stuff on the planets is so messy and stuff like that. But when you think back to that moment of Mass Effect 1, that is still, like, fuck, like, video games. I think of, on like, basically any medium. Mass Effect 1, I think, is the most single impressive piece of world building I have ever seen in a piece of media. And when you think about, like, and it made it seem so natural. It took it with, like... It came out of left field. Yeah, and it was just, like, took it with such stride. And it's, like, the things of, like, these, like, the big universes you think about, of, like, it's particularly for sci-fi. I guess, like, Lord of the Rings would be the other most impressive thing of, like, in, on, like, a novel and, like, fantasy side. That also took J.R.R. Tolkien decades to get yes. to that point. And so, but, yeah, with, like, science fiction and, like, modern stuff, with, with Mass Effect, you know, Star Trek had years and years and years and multiple TV series and multiple movies to build, slowly build up its sense of lore. Whereas you go back to the original series stuff, like the original, original series episodes, there's no real sense of the larger Star Trek universe. Like you have Vulcans and you have like the alien of the week and, and you hear the terms like Starfleet Federation and stuff like that, but there's no larger sort of universe built there. And like Star Wars, it was very evocative, but like there wasn't a lot of detail anywhere. But, you know, it's a movie, so it doesn't need as much detail. But still, like you could tell, you know, like the Moss Eisley aliens were just sort of like random aliens scattered around. In Mass Effect, it's like... Every single alien species, if you want to, you can go into an encyclopedia and, like, have a dude read out, like, seven paragraphs about, like, the fucking sexual patterns of, and, like, sexual behavior and mating behaviors of Krogans. It's like, I know shit that I will never forget for my whole life. Like, Krogans have four testicles and Turians are silicon-based life forms and, and shit like that that's, like casual bits of world building that is spread out throughout that for like set up by that first game and then it's continued through the rest of the Mass Effect franchise that that you don't think about how much thought has to be put into that and how naturally it sort of like just exists in that universe to where I haven't played a Mass Effect game since Mass Effect 3 came out and I can till, still tell you stupid shit about like I can name all the major species in that fucking universe with like Elcor, Geth and Quarians and fucking yep. Turians and Salarians Wait. and Krogans and, and Hanar it's like I there's so much like Batarians when I think of Mass Effect 1 I don't think of the combat. I don't think of the Mako. All these things that, you know, are kind of easy to malign in that game. Yeah. I remember walking around the Citadel or walking around a, a planet area yeah. or one of the different places you visit and talking to people and having long, in-depth conversations and just soaking in a world that feels like it exists in totality whether you are there or not. Yeah. And that is an... Ex and especially for a first game, that is a feat of world building that is... I, there's no real comparison to that because, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien didn't start with The Lord of the Rings or The Silmarillion. He's, yeah. Well, he kind of started with The Silmarillion, but he started with, like, The Hobbit. Yeah. And The Hobbit is kind of like the first Star Wars and that it doesn't... It's evocative, but, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. 
And I think it is key to remember why Mass Effect 1 is so important, because while 2 and 3 are fantastic in a lot of different, and, and, and they improve on Mass Effect 1 in so many ways, the foundation of why you are attached to the Mass Effect trilogy lies in Mass Effect 1, and I think you're completely right on that. Yeah. But then for me to say something a little bit about Mass Effect 2 is it is my favorite game. And I agree with everything you said. Like, particularly, it's the structural design of that game that is so important to keeping the pacing up and keeping the pacing feel good. And, like, the, the character basis of the storytelling, I thought, was so smart in that game. And it, it's so key to how that game is structured and keeps it feeling fresh in a way that, like every other Bioware game except for maybe Mass Effect 3 and even Mass Effect 3 a little bit like sl- like slows down and lags in places like Mass Effect 1 has that problem KOTOR has that problem if you go back to Baldur's Gate those games have that problem and it's like Dragon Age had that problem Dragon Age Inquisition had that problem fucking Mass Effect 2 is so perfectly paced throughout it's like it's easy to forget when people are talking about with like playing through Mass Effect Andromeda and spending like 70 hours and beating the game in 70 hours it's like a full 100% playthrough of Mass Effect 2 is like between 25 and 30 hours. It's like that's such a good length for a game like and that. And it feels so much richer than the 70 hours of exactly. Andromeda or yeah, something. Or like a Dragon Age Inquisition, definitely. Yeah. And it's, and, but then also for me, Mass Effect 2 is my standard for like the best sequel ever made in video games in terms of it is, a, it is a sequel that looked at its original game and said what worked here and what didn't. And it was a, it's a sequel that was willing to say what didn't work is fucking gone. Like, they just cut out things from Mass Effect 1. They cut out systems from Mass Effect 1. They, stru- they cut out structural design elements of Mass Effect 1. And, like, took all the sort of story stuff and the, the universe and, and a lot of the basic concepts and of that were really good in Mass Effect 1. And, and But they said, what is a much smarter, better blend of sort of the third-person shooter stuff and of an RPG? What are the things from RPGs we want to keep... And what are the things from third-person shooters that we want to emphasize? Because Mass Effect 1 is this really awkward game that doesn't quite know which camp it wants to fall into. And Mass Effect 2 says, what we need from RPGs is we need the storytelling, we need the characters, we need the universe, and and, and a small sense of progression. And that's all we need. We don't need a big inventory system. We don't need a massive skill tree. We don't need like like those things because we need to make sure that the shooting feels good and that it is fun to engage with because it's an important part of playing these characters and going through this story. And why Mass Effect 2, frankly, still feels like such this island to me of quality is that it is the best game that was surprisingly non-influential. Like, it has, right. it has had influence in some ways, no doubt about it, but even Bioware didn't quite learn the lessons from Mass Effect 2. And in fact, in Dragon Age Inquisition, and especially Andromeda, has moved so far afield from what they learned with that game. Yeah. And, and in, to, in small degrees in Mass Effect 3, although I think that game is pretty close in quality, uh, it's kind of stunning that the industry did not take the lessons of Mass Effect 2, because I think by and large they did not, and that is why Mass Effect 2 is still this high watermark that I have feel has yet to be surpassed by an American RPG. Yeah, because I just think Mass Effect 2 had this like incredible perspective to say, if we're not going to... Do, like If the inventory stuff in the massive skill tree is not going to be an important part of this game, we don't need it there. It's like we like the, the open world, like, like landing on the planets thing, if we can't dedicate like enough resources to make that work and make that be this important intrinsic, like, intrinsic element of this game design, 
we don't need it. We can cut it out and have more streamlined side quests that that get the same like aesthetic and effect of those larger worlds in Mass Effect 1 across, but they're streamlined and fun to play through and are engaging and don't lag in places. And it's like, that is so important. It feels like in this world where every single video game is in some way an RPG, it is important to look back at a Mass Effect 2 and say, like, yeah, you can make a 20-fucking-hour RPG that doesn't need to have all these cumbersome systems on top of it. You can make it sleek and lean, and that is the shit that people will love about it. Yeah. Uh, and then did you say we want to say anything about 3? Three? 3 is the, uh, the amazing conclusion. The yeah, people who yeah. didn't like the ending of 3 are assholes and are probably all people who voted for Donald Trump. That might be a slight generalization, but in my heart of hearts, that is exactly how I They're almost certainly the people behind Gamergate. Oh, yes. It is like like the, the Mass Effect 3 quote-unquote controversy is exactly like... We, we Nobody could see it at the time, because of course you couldn't see it at the time, but it was the precursor to, to Gamergate and, and considering the whole Gamer, and all this shit. Yeah, and considering that Gamergate was the precursor to all this stuff, like... Maybe if you didn't like the ending of Mass Effect 3, maybe you didn't vote for Trump. You definitely didn't vote for Hillary Clinton, and I'm still going to judge you for that. Sure, yeah. Can we go with that? All right. Sure, yeah. So, okay, let's recap our picks so far. We've each done three. We've done, I've done Persona 3, Persona Halo... Okay, okay, yeah, you go through all of okay. these. I've done Persona 3, Halo Combat Evolved, and Mass Effect 2. I've done Persona 5, Halo 3, and Mass Effect, all of them, but I'll say Mass Effect 2. Okay. Um... Can I go next? Sure, go ahead. Okay, I, I haven't say, thought of anything. Super Mario 64. Okay, sure. I yeah. go with that. Um, Super Mario 64 is the one that, frankly, the two that immediately come to mind for me are Persona 3 and Mario 64. And Mario 64 is definitely a stand-in for Mario in general to me. Right. But it's a stand-in because that is one of the first games I ever fell in love with. One of the first games that kind of showed me and, and introduced me to the power of video games as this, this, this art object that you engage with that feels boundaryless in so many ways even though Mario 64 has very obvious boundaries when you're yeah. a kid and you're playing that and even sometimes when you're an adult and you fall under its spell you don't realize those boundaries it's just this game that you explore and you engage with and is such a masterpiece of game design and is such a bold and audacious piece of game design as you know essentially the first 3D platformer and a game that invented many of the conventions we use today of just open worlds and it basically invented the camera system right. that we use today and all these things it is a brilliant brilliant game I think, you know, if I didn't have some of the nostalgia goggles for it, there are definitely... I could argue for other Mario games in this spot. Like, if, sure. I, if I'm not naming Mass Effect 2 as the best game of that generation, I'm naming Super Mario Galaxy 2, and it's one of those. But I'm not going to put two Marios on this list. So, because I could also do, like, Mario 3D Land. I could do one of the 2D ones, Mario World or Mario 3, or just fuck it, original NES Mario Brothers, because they're Super Mario Brothers, because I think that's a brilliant fucking game. But I kind of all, all the things I love about Mario, kind of ultimately there's something in Mario 64 that kind of represents so many of those things. And I think it is just, it is also an example of a game that just fucking endures in a way that I can go back to that game any day of the week as much as I want, and I will enjoy the hell out of it. Like recently, my brother and I did a race in that game where we said we did an hour timer and we were both playing it and who can get the most stars and I got like 30 stars or something and I just fucking loved that experience just going in and just like I'm just going to play Mario 64 for an hour and get some stars yeah. one of the best hours of games I've had this year and this has been a great year for games so you know just stuff like that um, Mario 64 there is no top 5 for me that doesn't have Mario 64 yeah I, I will I will second Mario 64 but obviously like I'm just I'll pick a different game but 
I'll, I'll, I'll just go ahead and sticking with the N64, I'll go with Ocarina of Time, obviously. One of us had to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there are going to be a lot of people that are going to be having a lot of arguments now about what is the fucking best Zelda game. It's still Ocarina of Time. I will hear the argument for Link to the Past because 2D Zeldas are different things. But it is, and my, it is, it is still Ocarina of Time. I played fucking three hours of Ocarina of Time earlier today. That game is fucking amazing. It, it is, it was like kind of a lot of the stuff you were saying with Super Mario 64 in terms of it building, like in reinventing how you play a video game in 3D. And there's something with like anything that does that, no matter how old it gets, there is a sense of ingenuity and creativity and a spirit in that thing that thrives no matter what like no matter like how for granted you take a lot of the systems in Ocarina of Time and let's also say no matter how like psychologically difficult it is to deal with playing Ocarina of Time on a controller that has two analog sticks because you don't think about it when you're playing on a controller that only has one analog stick that you don't have free camera control. Right. As soon as that second analog stick is on that controller, you're like, well, how the fuck did I ever play this video game? And so I got, I got used to it after I cleared the first dungeon. But I ended up, I did die to Queen Goma because I just couldn't get my head around playing on this different controller. But it is, it is that sort of sense of like inventing what this game is, like what this combat is, like what how to tell a story in this world. Like replaying the beginning of Ocarina of Time just re-highlighted for me how good the storytelling is in that game and how sh- and how like I'm I think underappreciated a lot of the storytelling is in that game because people talk about that like you will find a it's million a storytelling. Yeah, but you will find a million articles online about how good the storytelling is in like the the death stuff is like the symbology of death and like the inevitable in Majora's Mask. And that game totally has that stuff. It is worth appreciating. But like Ocarina of Time does so much to thematize this idea of being a child and what it is to grow up and like everything in that game is so much about that sense of Link existing in this liminal space between being a child and being an adult and not and, and like for that whole game never being in one camp or the other until maybe arguably at the very end of the game where he defeats Ganon it's like okay now he's a he's a he's a man like he's done it like he's gone through this rite of passage he's an adult and then they force him to go back into a kid body which is always like one of the most bittersweet endings in any video game ever, especially when I play that game as a kid, because the one thing you want to be when you're a kid is an adult. Like, you want to grow up, and there's something about... And when you're an adult, all you, you want to be, be is to be a kid. And there's something about that sense of when you're playing that game as a kid, and it's like, I've done it. And it's like, it's one of the reasons why everyone after, like, rejected Wind Waker and wanted Twilight Princess was like, I want Adult Link, because Adult Link is fucking cool, because they every kid that played that game saw in themselves Adult Link and, like, the future them they were going to be and how fucking dope they were going to be because they don't have to have the Hylian, like, the big Hylian shield on their back and they can barely use it. It's like you're just, like, constantly pulling that thing out and it's it's nothing. Like, you don't have this tiny little shitty cookery dagger. It's like you have the Master Sword. And then for the game to say, like, but but Link has to go back and, and get there again the long way is such a, like, bold, melancholy choice for the ending in that game. And I think that kind of storytelling... Is suffused throughout the entire game. Like I've, I've talked about on the podcast before, for me, one of like the most fundamental moments of like playing games as a kid 
was that moment when you beat the first dungeon and you go in, onto that bridge to leave the forest and then Saria is there waiting for you with that ocarina and then she gives you the ocarina and Link like looks at her, kind of backs away like he's frightened and just runs and then the camera lingers on Saria for a while and there's such great camera work and like such great attention to detail to that stuff in Ocarina of Time that especially when you go from Breath of the Wild to Ocarina, you see how much of what Breath of the Wild is is still drawn from Ocarina of like like half of the puzzles at the beginning of that game is fucking pulling out a big stick, setting it on fire, and setting some other shit on fire. Like that is what that game was, and no other games were like that at that time. And to me, that is still that is like it is still exciting to do that in that game. No, I mean I came to Ocarina of Time later in life, as y'all know. And it, the storytelling and presentation of that game still floored the fuck out of me. And I think if, if you can't recognize, you know, what that... And frankly, how superior that game is to most modern video game storytelling. Yeah. Even though I love a lot of modern video game storytelling. You're, like, blinded by modern video game storytelling. Because there's something about Ocarina of Time that I feel like we still have so many lessons to learn from it. Yeah. And, and I would put in a word for Link to the Past there, too. But although that doesn't have the same kind of story stuff yeah. to it. But, yeah. Um, yeah, not not going to be on my top five, mostly because you named it, <laughs> and I don't feel like I need to put a Zelda that, on here. That's how I feel but, about Mario 64. Okay, also. there we go. So yeah, Also, shout out, the music in Ocarina of Time is so fucking good. Oh, yeah. It is so fucking good. It's so fucking good. It's, it's so fucking good. Luckily, you can say that about most Zelda games. Yeah, but like that one in person, I think personally because you know it's Ocarina of Time, like you're directly engaging with the music. Oh, yes. There's still like, that's one of the first things I did when I got the Ocarina is I like just popped that thing out. I was like, I never really figured out how to use the Ocarina, like the freeform stuff of like you can change the pitch with R and L and the analog stick in different ways. I've never been good at doing that. I will still spend like fucking 10 minutes just fiddling around with that thing because it's fucking awesome. Yeah. All right, so now is the moment of truth. We have to pick our number five slot. Oh, and I have like four in mind, and I don't I've know got which like, one to pick. I have so many in mind. Um, so this is the hardest one. Uh, um, Can I just say, the first four I named, those are the easy, off-the-top-of-my-head top four, and then there's like 20 more. Yeah. Um, yeah, because, because this is just the one where you like realize, ah, maybe like I would have put another game in one of these spots. This is like five. Yeah. Is, I will... I will just say this one because fuck it, there's so many games that can be in this spot. I will say the original Doom is to me okay. like there is even like in part of me a mark of how amazing that game is is that I did not play it when it was new and came to it when it was re-released on the Xbox 360 and fell in love with that game and played that game. I played that game through like three times at this point and it's like it is just kind of like in the way that a Mario game can be or like a lot of the Zelda games can be. It is this, just such a triumph of raw game design and also of aesthetic that I think, like, the music and the art style of the original Doom is so timeless and so great. Particularly the music is, is one of the best video game soundtracks there's ever been. And it's just that raw game design and that flow of the combat, as simple as it is in Doom, feels so good. The speed in that game feels so good. And it's the pacing of moving through these levels and, like, sort of uncovering these labyrinthine levels and mastering them and finding all these secrets and defeating these enemies. And it just... Again, it's just this sort of triumph of raw combat design and level design intertwined in a way that, like, the new Doom recaptured. But obviously, there's, you have to give... There's something about that, like, invigorative energy of that being one of the first 
first-person shooters ever made and made such a distinctive and powerful stamp on the history of video games that for years after its release, every other game that was a first-person shooter was just called Doom Clones because right. that is that is how effective that genre or that, that game was. And no other game made in that specific style of first-person shooter ever beat Doom. Like, was never better than Doom. Like, I've gone back and played a lot of those kinds of games, like Star Wars Dark Forces, Shadow Warrior, like, a lot of, like, Hexen, the ones that people say, like, oh, these are, like, the other, like, great games from that era, Duke Nukem 3D, even Marathon, the like, the games that were the predecessors to Bungie. Like, I'm very interested in that era of shooters. None of them come even close to eclipsing Doom in terms yeah. of that kind of game design to the point where... Like, first-person shooters just had to move on because they couldn't fucking top Doom. So they decided, we're just going to become kind of a totally different genre and just, just like, totally forget about that whole labyrinthine level thing and go for a way more linear game design because we can't beat Doom. It's too good of a game. We're just going to do something else. And how great is it that we've cycled back around to the best first-person shooter of this generation is also named Doom. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty great. Yep. All right, um, Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. No, just kidding. Just kidding. That I, I could have gone with you, man. I could have used you. You said Digi, and I was like, no. And then you said Mon. I was like, maybe. You said Story. I was like, okay. Then you said Cyber Sleuth. I'm like, I will fight this fight with you, man. <laughs> um, love that game. It's not my top five, but I just just to freak people out a little bit. We could, oh. we could make the argument. Yeah. We could write the book. We could. Um, no. Great. I will I will definitely go to the map for it as the best game of 2016. I don't know if I'll go beyond that at the moment. Okay. Um, maybe the best JRPG on the PS4 in America until Tuesday. Okay, <laughs> We yeah. can go with that. Sure. No. Um, anyway, yeah, I have so many in mind for this slot. I could go with a Smash Bros. I could go with a Fire Emblem or a Pokemon. Like, there's a lot that I could go with here. The one I keep have come back to as we've been talking and I've been thinking yeah. like what would my fifth slot be is probably Metroid Prime. Okay. And yeah. I'll go with Metroid Prime here. And part of my heart wants to go with Super Metroid, so I have some Super NES game on here. But really, it is Metroid Prime for me. It is another one that I think of in the, on the same level as Mario 64 and Ocarina of Time. I think it's part of that trifecta. It just came a little later. Sure, yeah. Of taking a... Which is... Super Metroid came later on the Super NES, so it actually makes sense. But it, it took this famous you know 2D series... And transformed it into 3D, and the ingenuity on display in that game is so great and so unique that it's another game that just has not really ever been replicated. There are parts of Metroid Prime in a lot of modern games, in particular Nintendo. People at Nintendo clearly have an affection for that game if you look at things like Breath of the Wild and stuff like that. Um, but Metroid Prime, I just, you know, it's a game I played a good amount when I was a kid, but I didn't really get fully into until I was an adult and, and until, frankly, the Wii version was out, because I do think that's a superior version of the game where you have free motion of the, of the camera. Um, and, and I actually think it also helps to the, the exploration of that game. There's something about the motion controls that make you feel even more, because it's, it's very one-to-one -one motion control, and it's not too intensive, it's not too gimmicky, that makes you feel even more just part of that world and just the world design of Talon 4 and just exploring that world and the freedom of it and just the, the, that atmosphere there is no game with thicker atmosphere than a Metroid game in general but Metroid Prime in particular you can cut that atmosphere with a knife it is so fucking thick and so genius and it's just it's, it's a game that, that is slow yet propulsive in so many beautiful, powerful ways. And it is one of those that, if I'm thinking of like best games ever made, yeah. it is one that rises to the top of the pile for me in a lot of different areas. So 
that would probably round out my top five. Though I leave the caveat that I am serious that in a year or two, when I've had time to reflect on it, Breath of the Wild could be in one of those slots for me. So, um, but I'm not, obviously not considering that yet. Yeah. Because um, just played it. Right. So, you want to recap, or did you want to say anything about that? No, I feel like it's just, I, I never finished Metroid Prime, and then like I played it so long ago that I don't have yeah. a lot to add. Yeah. So, yeah. okay, my top five okay. were, I'm going to go kind of backwards, uh, Metroid Prime, Mario 64, Mass Effect 2, Halo Combat Evolved, Persona 3. Okay, I'm going to go the order we originally did. I'm going to, so I did Persona 5, Halo 3, Mass Effect 2, Ocarina of Time, and Doom. Man, that's actually kind of a fun activity. There's yeah. some good stuff in there. Can, can, do you want to just list off a name of other games that you want to say? Because I will have back I just, and forth. Yeah, just like, like do don't it. say anything else about it. Just names of games because I feel like okay. I just need to mention them because it okay. hurts. Super Smash Brothers. Okay. Uh, Burnout Paradise. Link to the Past. Half Life. Uh, Pokemon Crystal. Starcraft. Uh, Super Metroid. The Last of Us. Oh, man. Uh, uh, the Last of Us. <laughs> Sorry. Fine. Uh, a journey. Journey's Unch- real good. Uh, Uncharted 4. Okay. I wouldn't quite put Uncharted 4 there. It's, it's close, but it's not quite there. It's, it wouldn't be in like my Inner Circle Top yeah. 10. We just you named a Naughty Dog game. So, yeah. Uh, the Witcher 3. Oh, fuck you. The Witcher 3. I should have said The Witcher 3. How did I not go? I think Witcher 3 maybe is actually in that top 5 for me. I should have thought of that. I'm sorry. I thought you would have yeah. thought. Of, I thought you were thinking of that. It's, it's, just, it's just it's so recent that my mind doesn't come to it when you talk about like like yeah. best games ever made. But Witcher Three is definitely in there for me. Yeah. yeah so Witcher Three. Uh, I, then I will say the original Dark Souls. Um. Uh, Super Mario World. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Resident Evil Four. Um. God, I had one in mind. What was it? I don't know. I'm going to say Digimon Story Cyber System. Throw <laughs> okay. back to you. Super Mario World. <laughs> okay. Uh, Link's Awakening. Okay, sure. Yeah. Uh, the, original, the Fire Emblem on the GBA. That's Fire, just called Fire Emblem. Fire Emblem Awakening. Okay, yeah. On the 3DS. Okay, man. Have we gotten it out of our system yet? I think I, think I feel good. There are obviously there are other games. Diablo 2. That's a really good uh, one. Diablo 3 for me. I love Diablo 3. You're just jumping off of everything that I said. No, but I actually... That is not something listeners in this podcast probably know is how much yeah. Diablo 3 I've played. Yeah, because you came to it later. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that is one of my favorite games ever. Diablo 3 is really fucking good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, nice oh, oh, Wario Land on the Game Boy. Wario Land, Super Mario Land 3. Sure, yeah. Yeah. I have, I have Nights of the World to Public. Yeah, Wireland is maybe the first game I ever played, so I have to mention that. Okay. Oh, Sonic the Hedgehog 3 slash Sonic and Knuckles. Uh, Sonic Adventure 2. Okay. I've, that game is good. It's, it's it it occupies an, an important place in my development as a game. Okay, so. sure. Your nostalgia. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, in my nostalgia as well. I didn't but, play yeah. the 2D Sonic games as kids until they came out on GameCube. So, yeah. Okay. Okay, I think I'm good. Let's move okay. on. All right. That just felt good to you, just invent. You named within your top five Persona 5. So yes. what do you want to tell listeners about? Let's say this is a very short oh, topic. Yeah, yeah. The day has finally arrived for those of us who don't speak Japanese. Persona 5 comes out in the United States on Tuesday. I've got my Take Your Heart edition pre-ordered. Good God, Amazon, if you fuck that up. <laughs> if you fuck that up for me, you are dead to me. You are dead. To, you haven't shipped it yet. To, if to they fuck it up for me, maybe I'll just start replaying the Japanese version. Yeah, you'll be fine. But, I mean, I could also just get it digitally and I would do that. But still, if you fuck that for me, don't fuck me on that, Amazon, okay? Man, I mean, Persona 5 is a game. 
I've been waiting for since basically I played Persona 4 in 2012. It's a game we've been waiting for for like kind of almost this whole podcast. Yes, because uh, it's had many delays. We've known about it for a long time. We've played many Persona games in the interim and fully expecting... You you just said it was one of the top five. I'm fully expecting it to be part of that inner circle too. Yeah. And it's it's weird to be anticipating a game at that level and not worried about setting too high of expectations because I know there's no such thing for this team. Yeah. Because they have done things in gaming that no one else has ever done. For so, sure, yeah. So what do you... I'm, I'm curious about this question. Sometimes, okay. you know, people do those lists. I actually like these of, like, things you need to know to play the game. Yeah. Not in general order, but what do you want to tell people about Persona 5 in non-spoiler of what they should kind of think about going into the game? Um, number one, appreciate the base. That is the most <laughs> important thing about the game. Like, whole, And it's something that I say that because I don't think I, I appreciated the bass the first time I played the game. But it wasn't until I listened to the soundtrack on its own that I think I fully appreciated the bass. And holy fucking shit. There are some of the bass lines in the songs in this game. In particular, Layer Cake. Which I'm not going to tell you what song that is until it's on this. The name of the song in that soundtrack. You will never guess what song that that name is called. That that song is called Layer Cake, based on where you see it in the game. There's nothing about the quality of that song that tells you it should be called Layer Cake. It is called Layer Cake, and the bass line is fucking amazing. Um, other things I will say. Here, here is something I sort of learned to do, and I. I'm trying to figure out like a way to say this without giving too much away, but it's something that like I sort of figured out after I did a couple of these sort of dungeon sections of the game is that there's a structural thing with those dungeons where when you go into you you can basically you can play through most of the, like all the dungeon on your like first day and if you can do that like you know in terms of like your stamina and your character builds and stuff like with Persona Four you know get all the way to the end of the dungeon. But you can't, like, you have to get to the end of the dungeon and then you kind of have to go back out and take a day to then set something up to be able to go into the dungeon again, like, the next day or whenever you're going to go in again to fight the boss. And that's sort of how the dungeons are structured, is you have to fight the boss on a separate day of you getting to the end of the dungeon. And I will just say this, when you go in on that day when you're going to go fight the boss, maybe don't just teleport to the end of the dungeon and fight the boss immediately. Run through the dungeon again. It's because for a couple of reasons, it's cool, and then also you will you will top up on experience and stuff in a way that will be helpful to leveling up in the game. But also, again, I don't want to give too much away, but like there's there are elements of the design of the dungeons you will not appreciate if you just teleport to the most the closest safe room to the boss and go straight to the boss on the day you fight the boss. Appreciate those dungeons because the dungeons are really like one of the best parts of the game. I'm so excited. Yeah. Um, other things. Uh, you know, take your time with the game. Like, like you, you have, you have, you have enough time to take your time. It is not as strict as Persona Three in terms of like the social link stuff. I ended the game with like being really obsessive about like finishing the social link stuff with like a, basically a week and a half to spare. And if you like, unless you are like, like me, like like really focused on absolutely maxing out all the social links, like just like just go with the flow, man. If you feel like you want to go to the batting center. Even if it's maybe not the most, like, on a spreadsheet, the most cost-effective thing to spend your time on. And maybe just check out what the batting center is up And to. in general with Persona games, if... Because I'm sure we have listeners who this will be their first Persona game. Yeah. Um, don't also feel, like, stressed out that you have to max them all your first playthrough. No. It's totally yeah. okay not to. And I didn't when I was... For the first time I played through Persona 4 or 3. Yeah, so same here. So, you know, maybe once you've played, gotten a couple under your belt, it's easier to do, but... 
Yeah, I've actually I gotta say I'm I've, I've I'm getting tweets from lots of people being excited for Persona Five and like mentioning awesome, us specifically yeah. just because we're the Persona guys and uh, it's just it's 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 invigorating it's it's nice that there's this communal thing around it too yeah and I guess also yeah like along the lines of like take your time with the game is appreciate what like Tokyo has to offer because the game is set in Tokyo. And, and Tokyo, which is the first time a Persona game has been set in a, like, real-world setting. All the other settings have been sort of slightly based on real-world things, but have been sort of fictionalized. And Tokyo is such an important part of the game. Like, it is such a linchpin around the game operates in every single sphere. It is, like, the city and, and, and urbanity. Like, that is what the game is about. And you need to sort of, like breathe in the city life and like appreciate what is there because it's far denser and there's a lot more stuff to do in Tokyo than there has been in sort of like that section of like Inaba or Tatsumi Port Island in the past like there's a lot more shops there are more people on the streets there's just more things to do and like there's a reason this game is 100 hours long there's a reason yeah there's a reason why this game is 100 hours long because even like I was really interested in seeing that a lot of the viewers said that their play times were like between 90 and 100 hours which is around how long my play time was it was a little bit longer than the average they were talking about but it seems like me playing the game in Japanese did not actually extend the game of the time or the, my time in that game that drastically right because it inflated it a little bit because you can't read Japanese yeah. as fast as English but but it was hard to tell without like an independent metric if this game was actually that much longer than the other Persona games or if it just was taking me that much longer because it was in Japanese and it, it, is, it is a longer game than those games gut check and I am yeah. curious on your thoughts on this it's got dual audio. Yes. Do you think people should play it in English or Japanese? Mm, it depends on, like, like obviously on the people. Like, the, I haven't seen that much of the English voice acting. The only I've only seen, like, what has been in the trailers and a couple of videos I've seen since the game has been available to reviewers. And all the English localization stuff looks really good. I will say, like, I think, like, the Japanese voice acting is absolutely outstanding. It's... See, I'm very torn. (laughs) It's something that, like, I think if you're someone who understands a good amount of Japanese, there's maybe something to get out of playing it with the Japanese audio. I would say if you're someone who does not, like, understand much Japanese at all or has, like, no real familiarity with that or, like, doesn't watch a huge amount of anime or something, I would say stick with the English voice acting because the English voice acting seems very good. And I'm kind of planning on playing it that way because I assume you're going to play it through in English to see that side of it and so we have a similar frame of reference. Yeah. But I like I'm not at all worried about losing anything that way because they're so good at this. But it's this is the first time we've had that choice in a percentage. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are things about the game that like you, like will make more sense if in like there there are, there are elements of the storytelling in the game that are small like character things and stuff like that that simply aren't impossible to translate. Like Morgana refers to himself with the personal pro- pronoun Wagahai, which is that has like is a very specific thing that has specific connotations that. You can't, like, it's literally impossible to translate into English. There's nothing you can do with that. So Morgana just, like, refers to himself as I or whatever. Yeah. You know? But we know they're going to do their damnedest to do all of that in this localization. Yeah, like, like they have honorifics and stuff like that represented yeah. in the English dub from what I've seen. It's, you know, I think it, it, from what I have seen of the English dub, it looks like it is exactly the kind of quality of localization you would expect from... Goddamn well better be. We've waited a long time for it, guys. Yeah, no, <laughs> like, it's... it's I, I, I'm... You know, it, it's something where you never know with how, like, long it has taken for Persona 5 to come out. If maybe, like, people from Atlas USA have, like, left or something and there's a different localization team. I have no idea if that is the case or not. But there's always a chance that that is not going to be up to the standards that you would want for this series and kind of need for this series with how dense the story is. And, again, without having played the English version, it seems like that is totally fine. And, like, regardless, you're not ever going to get the Japanese text. And since a lot of the, the dialogue in the game is not fully voiced... 
Yeah. Like putting on Japanese voices, you're not going to get the full Japanese right. side of the story regardless. But so cool that they give us that option for the yeah. first time. So, all right. Persona 5 comes out Tuesday. It's going to take over this podcast to a certain degree. And then Doctor Who is going to be fighting for space with it. Yeah. And then other things are going to be fighting for space with it. And uh, we're going to see how fast we can play through it. Um, boy, I am, I've been trying to keep my excitement at bay. The launch of the Nintendo Switch and then Breath of the Wild was enough to keep my excitement at bay for a while. But then I finished those games, and now I'm just in a state of pure, like, I'm, I, part of why I've been watching The Leftovers is to, like, get myself out of the mind space. I am so, this is like Halo 3 level D-Day excitement for yeah. me, 2007. I am so psyched for this fucking game. I bought a red controller for it. I mean, come on. Yeah. I'm going to to buy a fucking cat just so I have it on my cat. Maybe a Morgana just so it lives with me. And you have, you put it in your school bag and you take it with you everywhere, no matter yes. where you go, because that's Morgana is your your best friend forever. <laughs> All right, uh, we'll see you guys next week. Appreciate the base. <laughs>